You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Winter Kills. The search for a truth that could shake everything you ever believed in. What Nicholas Keegan will discover is the most dangerous, shattering revelation of our time. The Keegans are an American dynasty. What am I going to do with these girls that suck First they're hot, then they're cold. Hello, Pa. You all know my son, Nicholas. Hi, Nick. They own ships, oil, and swank New York restaurants. We don't allow ladies in trousers in the dining area. You what? Ah, it's no problem. Follow me along the sidewalk. Is he didn't think I tipped him enough. Imagine that. We will have to ask you to leave. My name is Nicholas Keegan. My father owns this place. I'm awfully sorry, sir. They even own presidents. You think you got those votes and your good looks? I bought them and I paid for them. When I needed cash, I got it. Now, uh, you remember your debts. Damn it! Why do you think I got to this job? Review the fleet! Their computers hold information about millions of people, and his which can make fortunes or destroy lives. From our satellite, we can watch everything. Nasty little wars in Africa, crew movements, ship movements, nuclear tests, the Sinai, the Panama Canal, every little thing to check an investment. Nothing competes today with owning a hospital. No customer credit, pay in advance or get out. Unique product, pay. Laundry alone throws off enough to pay the order it is in the lab. Hey, Nick. Like a little? Well, I got a contract for you. One of the biggest contracts ever handed out. Anyways. Someone is trying to teach me a lesson in futility. Why am I the only one who wasn't killed? They will run you dizzy. They will pile falsehood on top of falsehood until you can't tell a lie from the truth and you won't even want to. That's how the powerful keep their power. Don't you read the papers? What the hell? He was caught trying to enter, Mr. Keegan. That's my son. They're calling the police. You beg him to die? I'm standing between you and darkest night, son. From Richard Condon's rousing bestseller, hailed by the New York Times for its shocking surprises and grand entertainment. Winter Kills, the epic spectacle of an American dynasty. Take my hand! Stupid! You want to go with me? Take my hand, Pa! Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jeff Myers. Hey, how's it going? Also joining us in the booth this week is Mr. Matthew Sosi. Sosi. Did I not say Sosi? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, your connection—it's you're fine because we we had our we we made fun of my technology earlier, okay. so uh, it's all right. How you doing? This week we're looking at the 1979 film from writer director William Richard. 
Winter Kills. Based on the 1974 novel by Richard Condon, the film tells the tale of Nick Keegan, half-brother of the president Tim Keegan, who was assassinated in Philadelphia in February 1960. When he receives a deathbed confession from the man who allegedly shot President Keegan, Nick goes down the rabbit hole trying to sort out the truth from the lies and obfuscations as everyone around him, including his father, Pa Keegan, likes to throw roadblocks his way. We're going to be getting into spoilers big time on this episode, so if you haven't seen this film, which sadly a lot of people haven't, go check it out and come back. We will still be here. Now, Jeff, when was the first time you saw Winter Kills, and what did you think? I remember my first memory of it when I um, you know, said to you guys, hey, if you do this, I want to be on this. Uh, my first the scene that always stuck in my head was the John Houston scene in the hospital where he's taking um, blood from uh, college uh, students to keep himself young. <laughs> but um, I, I think the first time I saw it was in the early 90s um, when it came out on video. I, I'm not sure the year. I remember it was right after JFK and I was kind of on a conspiracy film bender. Um, and in particular, I was really into at that time, British conspiracy films, because there were a bunch of them that came out in the eighties. And I think I just stumbled across it in a a video store in Chicago. One of the reasons that I was intrigued by it was it had Jeff Bridges, who I always liked as an actor. And then Anthony Perkins, who I kind of loved as an actor and always felt like he never got cast enough in films because everybody couldn't stop thinking of him as uh, Norman Bates. And even though he only has a couple of scenes in the movie, he's, he's really stand out in it. So that's kind of my whole, you know, when I was thinking back, that's, that's what I remember about <laughs> first seeing this film. How about you, Matthew? This is what I, I, I heard the title. I mean, I, I was, I was a kid who watched a Cisco neighbor when they were on PBS. So I, I knew the title. I knew that it was, there was some trouble behind it. It was also, I think the first film where you had a big name star in Elizabeth Taylor go uncredited, which fascinated me. And that, that seemed to indicate that there was, there was trouble behind the film. And then uh, actually I, I wound up seeing it a few years ago because of the, uh, the, the DVD release. And I didn't know until watching it that it was supposed to be a dark comedy. I mean, I thought it was uh, one of those, you know, seventies conspiracy movies like parallax view or executive action. And didn't realize that this kind of helped pave the path for, for films like JFK. Um, and just, and then the more I looked into it, I'm like, my God, what a great cast. I remember uh, was it Gene Siskel said, if two actors having lunch is more interesting than the film they make, I'd love to see the rap party with this group. Um, <laughs> that's you know, Sterling Hayden would bring the cannabis, and there'd be a lot of liquor, and uh, you know, it'd be a fun, fun couple of days. But yeah, that's I mean, I, I got into this one late, so you know, chalk one up for home video to finally uh, bring this to the light of day for people. Yeah, I think I also saw this one on VHS when it came out, and. I know I had heard about it or read about it or heard someone talking about it beforehand. I wish I could remember how the information got to me. But yeah, when you see the cover and you're like, Jeff Bridges and John Houston, what is going on here? How come I've never heard of this film before? And then you watch it and it's just everybody keeps showing up and you're just like, oh my God, Anthony Perkins. Oh my God, Eli Wallach. Oh my God, Sterling Hayden. And just over and over and over again. And the first time you watch it, you're just like breathless with anticipation as far as who's the next person that's going to show up. And it just keeps delivering over and over again. And it's like, again, 
why have I not heard of this movie? And then it's interesting to hear some of the reasons why you didn't hear of this movie. I mean, this is <laughs> one of those films where the making of the movie is as interesting as the movie itself or could be. You know, there should be a feature length documentary more than just the extras that are on the DVD to give us more of this amazing story. So you'll hear more about that later on when we talk to William Richard about the making of the film and how this, I should note, first-time feature film director managed to pull this thing off, which just seems like an accomplishment in and of itself. We've seen so many fictional films about behind the scenes of making a movie and, you know, everything from Ed Wood on as far as all the backstage shenanigans. And, you know, this actually happened. (laughs) Drugs and death and rescheduling and people not. You mentioned that whole cast list and some of them didn't get paid. And man, (laughs) my my, my favorite story in that is uh uh, Richard Boone, like actually holding up, holding the shooting hostage until the, ch- the check cleared. He was going to go fishing, you know, until he got his check or until his check cleared. That was too right. When they had like ha- had a, a like a tanker they're shooting on. <laughs> right. And Elizabeth Taylor wanted her mink and just, man, one thing after another. Yeah, there, there you, needs to be. You, did you hear how much she got paid? She could have like a hundred thousand dollars for a week's work, and 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 she doesn't speak, or, or I mean, she mouths one line. Oh, Br- in the film. Brando probably said she got off too easy, right? <laughs> well, she was getting paid. If you figured she got paid by the word, that's like what, like thirty three thousand dollars a word. <laughs> yeah, she mouthed a couple things we could read. Which apparently they cut out now when they show it on TCM. They won't show her mouthing son of a bitch, which just seems really tame to me. Yeah, really tame. <laughs> but, but who's afraid of Virginia Woolf's okay? All right. I have to laugh when this movie starts off and we've, so we begin with this answering machine and then we cut to Jeff Bridges on this ship that's just roiling crazily. And as soon as I see him with his shirt open and the age that he is, I'm just like, oh, he's on his way to Skull Island. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except he didn't have the beard. No, no beard, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, but yeah, it did, it did seem like it, they snuck in and shot during King Kong. So wait, you have Dino De Laurentiis going, nobody cried when the president dies. So so I got to throw this out there about the movie, uh, because even what I, and I, I remembered thinking this back when I first saw it. Now, um, watching it again, it's like 17 years, 19 years right after the shooting right like this the story mm-hmm. is that his his brother the president was shot so i'm sitting there thinking okay 19 years and he's maybe 28 so it was the idea that he was 10 nine years old when it happened yeah he had to have been a little whippersnapper that's for sure it's such a it's such a wild timeline <laughs> to think about in terms of what would drive a narrative, you have this character who's out in the middle of the ocean is activated to go on this giant quest for the brother he never really knew. <laughs> um, 19 years after his death, it's kind of, I don't know, it was just one of those things where it's like, what what made them think this was a, you know, a compelling, inciting incident for this character? So now I have two questions. One, do we imagine a Sea Hunt era Jeff Bridges in short pants saluting? The other one is that means Bo's the president? 
What were his policies? Also, when you think about it, that the Yvette Malone character was Tim Keegan's mistress as well as sleeping with with Nick Keegan. How old was she? Right. Like, was she eight? <laughs> like, I mean, maybe he was like Roy Moore. Angela Lansbury had Lawrence Harvey when she was nine. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, the timelines of this were just like so tortured. <laughs> When Joe Spinell says he's 50 years old, I was like, you're not nearly 50 years old, Joe. I know that you're bandaged up and everything, but I, I know you're not 50 years old. <laughs> well, I couldn't see under the bandages, so I could buy that. I was so happy to figure out that that was Joe Spinell. I always love when he shows up and stuff, and when it when it finally clicks that it's like, that's Joe Spinell. I was just like bouncing off the walls. The other thing that struck me watching it was... Anthony Perkins introduction in the movie, uh, when he first shows up, I have to wonder if they only got one take of that because he's literally, he's talking to Jeff Bridges and as he's hanging up the phone, he's still talking to Jeff Bridges. He's like, (laughs) like the phone is nowhere near his mouth. It's actually about to go into the cradle and he's still finishing his lines. And I was, I'm sitting there going, okay, that had to be like a mis- like you know for Perkins it was probably just he was it was a bad take but it was like either how bad were the other takes that they had to go with that one or did they just have no other takes <laughs> like they were like you know Tony we've got you for ten minutes <laughs> you know, to, to do this scene so it's his version of, of Mark Hamill accidentally saying "carry" uh, when when the Death Star explodes, and yeah, it was and it was also the aspect of you know they didn't have they weren't thinking about the home video market. Is people won't notice it; it'll be on the screen and it'll go away. And I think probably the last scene we have to like, or the other scene we just have to talk about is the use stink dad. Oh God, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> How many of us have been so frustrated that we hop onto our stallion and ride so we can scream at our parents? It's like something out of Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> John Hughes's Lawrence of Arabia, right? And 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 you know to connect the dots, uh, Maurice uh, Gray, yeah, it wrote the soundtracks for both. So clearly, they wanted to make use of that sweep his sweeping music instincts. <laughs> And I love Joe Spinell is, is literally served up to him on a silver platter when he's there making that deathbed confessional. Even though it being a black comedy and kind of a shaggy dog black comedy, I guess it shouldn't have been that surprising given that Richard Condon, you know, his books were often satirical. Even though they were really paranoid and conspiratorial in thinking, he had a strong sense of satire. So it makes sense that he's... Richard is trying to capture that, whether he does it successfully or not, we can talk about. But that aspect is is at least in sync with what Condon did in the novel. Now, I had to go back and read the novel because I was so curious about the woman in red who keeps showing up, the woman on the bicycle. Oh, that's so weird. Yeah, Right? And that is not in the book. I, I really wanted to see if that was there. And, and that is uh, definitely made up for the movie, which is an interesting touch. I have to say it's uh, kind of a nice way. It's a nice way to get Nick out of the car after he finds the, the gun and um, destroys that guy's wig shop with the steam pipe and everything. And yeah, that's when you kind of know 
that this is more of a comedy because there are moments in there where you're just like, what the hell's going on? Because un- until that point, I wasn't sure if that was a comedy or not. And even when the police sergeant is going the wrong way and they're like, no, 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 it's over here. And th- they have that whole skit in the wig shop. It's like, oh, okay, this is kind of weird. And then when Bridges passes the gun to the guy in the back seat and he says, the FBI probably made this and the guy bursts out laughing. I was like, okay, yeah, we're not in regular territory here because it's an un- it's an uneasy laughter that I'm having at that moment because I'm not sure that I'm supposed to be laughing at this because not too many assassination films are comedic, you know, the interview notwithstanding. Or, or gross point blank or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. Was the woman in red married to the little red guy and don't look now? You know, it's so funny you say that because watching it again, I was like, oh, this totally looks like they just saw never, you know, don't look now and wanted to kind of lace in that creepy hallucinatory moments, you know, following the protagonist mm-hmm. around. Especially because she's the one who throws the explosive cat into the... What a Bond device. I mean, Q should have made that. (laughs) Yeah, well, there is a game called uh, Exploding Kitten, so uh, maybe it was inspired by the movie. You mentioned, yeah, the the laughing aspect, because prior to this, when you think of dark comedies of this era, I I think of Harold and Maude or Dr. Strangelove, where it's it's more written in. And I think this one, this film has the dark comedy as far as behavior. I mean, some of the, some of the quirks that Perkins has and Houston has. So it's, it's more behavioral, I think, than maybe dialogue humor, uh, more behavioral, if that's a, if that's a thing. And so, and I, so there is that kind of feeling of, yeah, are we supposed to laugh at this? And it's also interesting that this is kind of, I mean, clearly they were going for something a little different because this is coming at the tail end of the paranoid thriller. Well, actually, paranoid thrillers have been like with the film industry since the film industry started. Um, I mean, you have to just look at Dr. Mabuse and you know that. But, you know, you had that 70s cynicism and all the great paranoid thrillers that came out in the 70s. And this is really at the tail end of this. Like, you know, you're being at 79. And I had to wonder if there wasn't a little of this attitude that we can't just be another parallax view, another, you know, three Mm -hmm. days of the condor or whatever it is um, that they actually had to kind of give it a little something different. It would be interesting to know if Richard talks about, you know, this idea of, I know that he says that he had to make it a comedy, but in all the interviews I've read, he never seems to explain why, like why that was the instinct there. Well, a lot of this does hold to the tone of the book, I have to say. I don't want to be those that guy who's like, well, in the book, well, in the book. But I will say one more thing is going back to that cat that we we're talking about. It's not really clear what's going on in that scene, but the cat is on the table licking up the cream that's supposed to go in the coffee that Jeff Bridges is drinking. And so in the book, there's a separate scene where he's, I think he's in a hotel or something, and he gets a glass of milk he does ask for milk from one of the butlers and there's a cat there and the cat dies and then they take the cat and the milk and get it analyzed and find out that it was poisoned and so they kind of combine those two things with the meeting of the the one mob guy 
and make that what's going on with that cat when they say, who the hell brought this cat in here? But it's not necessarily that clear. So unless you've read that or unless you're like, there's a cat here and there's a cat over there, and then you're supposed to realize they're the same cat and that the cream was poisoned. But yeah, it really doesn't stick together that well. And I think some of that is also because of the production. Things like... You know, just we were talking about uh, Nick on the boat and the way that the boat is careening like crazy. And then five seconds later, when he's up on the dock, it's ab- on the deck, I should say, it's absolutely still. So it's like there were scenes that went in between that kind of stuff. Speaking of Jeff Bridges asking for things, he has two moments where he talks to his butler. One, he wants a drink of anything, and then he wants Ovaltine and doesn't have it. And then years later, when he plays the president in The Contender, he asks for the most outlandish random things to eat and drink and gets them immediately. (laughs) Ah, there's the true conspiracy. When I try to pull apart the plot (laughs) in the movie, um, I mean, at first I thought it was kind of like the Orson Welles film, uh, Mr. Arkadin, right? Where it's like dad is sending his son to root out all the people who might be connected to the conspiracy so that he can pop them off, right? Because nobody's telling Nick Keegan the truth in the in the movie. Like the whole movie is basically a wild goose chase where everything is a con and everything is a lie and people are not who they say they are or they may be and we don't know. Like his girlfriend, is she an agent? It was she a was she, or was she an editor? Like who got replaced? Was it the receptionist at the desk who says she never existed at the magazine or or was or was she um or was she the one who was uh you know double dealing and just which if you believe like okay maybe the receptionist was the liar then i could go oh maybe she wasn't the mistress maybe she was just a girlfriend that he spilled the beans to and they had to off Obviously, when you have a movie where everybody's lying and then literally it seems like nobody tells the truth at the very end, you walk away going, "Okay, I have no idea whose agenda I was just following. Even at the end, you know, John Houston is blaming Anthony Perkins and Anthony Perkins is blaming John Houston and there's no solution. (laughs) Apparently, the solution is actually hurt Anthony Perkins by mistake. Right. (laughs) Break his arms. Yeah, I'm so curious what parts of those takes were real, you know, because the the story behind the production is that Bridges screwed up and used the real blackjack instead of the prop blackjack. So one of those hits, and I would think only one of those hits is real, but maybe two of them. I don't know how far Anthony Perkins acted through that. And the way that we're doing the shot reverse shot, I'm like, okay, where is this all one day? What's going on here? I would love to know the the chronology of what's actually happening. You know, are those reverse shots of Bridges the next day or later on after, you know, is that a stand in for Perkins? Is he going to the hospital? What's going on with this stuff? But I, yeah, that performance of Perkins, especially when he starts to shake, that's just some of the best stuff. I think he's wonderful through the whole thing. I love his whole, um, you know, when he's giving him the tour of the data center and, um, and did you read about how they shot that? Like without having a budget, which is pretty amazing, even though it's not a very long scene, they constructed a model, mounted the camera up at the ceiling, had the model as a tunnel, 
uh, attached to the camera and then had the actors way down below walking just on that little, you know, catwalk and then and then did a matte painting under the catwalk. So the cinematographer, um, he yeah, he he talked about how they had to line up the angles on that absolutely perfectly to get them to all work together. But even when the actors look up, they're basically looking up into a model, (laughs) which I just loved. I mean, that's like some Star Wars shit there. You know, that's like, yeah, they really thought that through for a movie that, you know, was constantly under financial strain. The creditors just showed up and told everybody to stop working. Sorry, we got to shut down this podcast. We'll come back in a year. (laughs) (laughs) And then we'll make a, we'll make a podcast. We'll make a podcast in Germany and it'll do well. And we can continue this one. But two years, like it shut down for two years, right? One thing that, you know, Richard was really smart was to have such a fantastic cinematographer at his back. I mean, because the movie, for a movie that was so fraught, it looks great. And this is the guy who shot, you know, Deliverance and The Long Goodbye. And he worked with Brian De Palma. And so it had that great kind of widescreen framing, even though the colors really popped. Uh, I was, you know, for a movie that was as fraught as it was, it sure looked great. You know, I said that this was his trip down the rabbit hole at the beginning, and it's it's kind of that, and it's also it's a little cane as far as the structure goes with the way that he will go to different people, and they will tell him things, and then we'll get these extended flashbacks. So we get these flashbacks, and sometimes even flashbacks within flashbacks of these characters telling this stuff. And to, to your point, we don't know if any of these narrators are reliable whatsoever. And are we seeing the truth or are we seeing something made up whole cloth? Is the person who's talking to us a real person or are they an actor? Cause we find out later on that the whole ZK Dawson, the Sterling Hayden character, that was all something that Anthony Perkins just set up. So Rudy set up. So, and that's kind of one of the things that I have a problem with, with the film is that just that info dump at the end of the movie where you're just like, whoa, okay, now my head's spinning. You're saying that this was wrong and this was wrong and this was wrong and wait, now is it this? And do I believe you? Because I will say that even when I was reading the book, at one point I thought I had everything kind of nailed down and then I it just lost me. It was just like, okay, now I'm in the weeds. Not to say that that was a bad thing, but it was just so many lies and so many obfuscations that it was just like, ah, do I really know what's going on? Like once they introduced the woman who was the um, the Elizabeth Taylor character, I was just like, okay, yeah, this is taking the movie and the story in a whole different direction than I expected. Yeah, well, and that was weird because it's – even if you look at the motivations of what they're saying. So Saruti says to Nick, you know, that it was your father, right? Like that your father basically – put all that money into having his brother become president and it, it was going to be good for business. And then, you know, the power went to his head and he started being a real president and dad didn't like it and took him out. And that makes sense to a certain extent as con as convoluted as the, you know, the explanations go. But then when he goes to dad and dad says, Oh no, no, I'm, I'm under the thumb of John Cerruti. Like, And he's the one who's pulling all the strings. And then I was like, okay, so that's an interesting counter argument. I don't get what he gets out of that. Like, 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 like then that seems an agenda less goal, you know, uh, a goal without actually any agenda. And 
then and then dad runs away. <laughs> so like the, literally, the, right. He literally runs away <laughs> and ends up. And then somehow he's on the, the right, flag. He's hanging from the American flag <laughs> off his skyscraper. And as he's falling to his doom, he's giving his son financial advice. <laughs> like, you know, um, he thought he was in saboteur. <laughs> it was almost like Paul Thomas Anderson stepped back in time and said, Oh no, no, let's throw in a little, there will be blood here. You know? So, so I can make you a better, businessman as i fall to my doom well that kind of makes sense because i think uh, daniel day lewis was definitely doing a john houston right right oh totally absolutely bastard in a basket (laughs) full circle you mentioned you mentioned rabbit hole what connections do we have between the jfk assassination and alice in wonderland and then which rock album should we listen to while watching winter kills Something by Jefferson Starship, oh, I think. Please. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> so should we talk about why Toshiro Mifune is in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> that is the elephant in the room, isn't it? Who convinced according, him to play a butler? <laughs> well, well I, according to the commentary, uh, of course, says, uh, if you have somebody, if, you, if your wait staff consists of Toshiro Mifune, that shows how powerful a person you are. Um, I'm assuming Toshiro got paid, or at least his check cleared on this one, but uh, also getting him into, I guess, the American market and doing one more film with Richard Boone. I don't know. In 1979, yeah, I just didn't get it. (laughs) It was like, what the hell is he doing in this movie? And what does he have, like, eight lines? Like, it's, it's like an episode of The Love Boat, but only if they had one scene each. There has to be a list of the international stars of the 70s that attempt to tap into the American market. And if you look at Mifune's American work, um, yeah. <laughs> it's not – they all can't be hell in the Pacific, I guess. Yeah, yeah, which was so good. Well, it's like Thomas Millian showing up in here. What I did think was an interesting tidbit was learning that the producers originally wanted Milos Foreman to do this. And I am intrigued by what kind of film that would have been. Yeah, I wonder if this, because I'm trying to remember his first American film, the one with Vincent Schiavelli and Buck Henry. I'm blanking on the name of it, but it seems like this might have fallen after that. And I don't know if he ever would have made Cuckoo's Nest if this was the next film. But I can kind of see him doing that. Cuckoo's Nest was way before this. They wanted to start making this movie. They were talking about this. I mean, the book came out in 74, so I think it was right around 74 that they were like, let's make this into a movie. It took a long time before they finally got this in front of the cameras, and then before it finally came out. Right, right. Yeah, Foreman was working on hair. That was that was his follow-up to Cuckoo's Nest. He made the better choice. You know, I'm interested in where you guys think this has its place in the whole pantheon of paranoid thrillers, because... In preparation for this, I kind of I went back and started making lists of this as a genre. And it seems like in many ways, this is a very I mean, it's definitely a genre that Americans have owned. The American cinema has owned. I don't know that we can claim that we created it, but certainly I mean, because if you look back at early Hitchcock, The Man Who Knew Too Much and 39 Steps and all that um, are very much within that genre. But there's this reoccurring paranoia through cinema, you know, whether it's science fiction like Invasion of the Body Snatchers or noir. Noir is like 
just nothing but conspiracies. And I'm intrigued where you think this fits in that kind of spectrum, so to speak. The JV squad, I guess. Well, when it comes to dark comedy and paranoid thrillers, I mean, it's, you know, do you put it up against any of Pakula's work? Uh, I don't think so. And is it, you know, is it in the top 10 of dark comedies of that era? Probably not, but it's got us. I, I think also what this film has going for, at least for, for cine nerds, is, is the whole backstory behind it. That rocky story is is at times more entertaining than some of the stuff that's happening in the film, which is why we're clamoring for a, a Criterion three-hour documentary about the film. That keeps it in the picture because there was so much uh, behind-the-camera shenanigans. I found this quote by Thomas Pynchon, which I thought was fascinating about the quality of Paranoid, like why, why we're drawn to Paranoid stories. And... He said, I'm paraphrasing, but he basically said that there's something kind of comforting about being paranoid, that it's almost like religion. If you're anti-paranoid, then it means you believe that nothing is connected to anything, and we can't bear the thought of that. We can't bear the thought that the world or life is random, and so we find comfort in conspiracy theories. I love that quote when I think of this movie because – it's almost this belief that nothing has to fucking make sense. <laughs> it doesn't have to make sense as a conspiracy. You just have to believe that there was one. Well, I think it would be crazy to think that anyone would move into the presidency for power and wealth and basically strip mine the country of, of all the wealth and just have these constituents giving them money. I mean, that just seems like a radical idea, and I just can't see that in America today or any other time. <laughs> it's okay though. His building was perfectly made well, and uh, it was it was sound in structure before it, it caught fire. Only losers don't put in their own sprinkler systems. If he was a winner, he wouldn't have burnt. This film speaks to our age right now as much as it did to 1963 and 1979 and 74. It just it feels like shit just has not changed at all. And, you know, you change some of the names. I mean, the names in this movie are so close to the names of the Kennedy assassination and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, you just switch them again one more time and you're right here in 2018. Well, and even its view of the, you know, the the rich, the 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 super rich literally having, you know, bedroom wings and hospitals so that they can draw blood from the younger generation. And, you know, the other crazy guy with his, uh, you know, Sterling Hayden's character with a with a landscape filled with his own private tanks to play war games with. And you sit there and you go, these dudes are no different than. Scott Pruitt and the freaks that we have in our running things now. I mean, they literally are coming out of casting from this movie. And centerfold nurses. That scene when you first meet John Huston in the movie and he pulls up in the golf cart and it's like a it's like a battalion of golf carts filled with rich people with their with their girlfriends all hanging off of them. And and what's the first thing he says to his dad? Where do you think these ladies have their hands on my balls? And you know, I'm like, how different is that from Trump? Literally none. Like like the only difference is the hand, their hands are on him instead of his hands on them. Yeah, I would say that when it comes to 
paranoid thrillers and paranoid black comedies that, I mean, there aren't too many paranoid black comedies that spring to mind, but I would say things like Wrong is Right, the Richard Brooks films from 82. There's a lot of strange... The Prisoner? Yes, The Prisoner as well. So, yeah, there's some, but... I'm usually more along the lines of the Parallax View or JFK or Executive Action, those kind of films, than than necessarily the, the comedy. But this works well. I have to say that the unevenness of comedy and thriller actually works in this movie's benefit, I would think. But when this came out in 79, I mean, we, the, the Hollywood had already made the shift. I mean, the blockbuster had it was already starting to take over. And I think anything that was remnants of the cynical seventies kind of went by the wayside. And then when they had the trouble and then they re-released it, I guess the director's cut a few years later, it, you know, it was kind of too late. It was, I don't know. Do you think it was, I mean, cause you know, 1980 was China syndrome and you did have like the rise of De Palma right around that time with, you know, blowout and um, body double, but he was kind of draping it in sex, so you know. Yeah, that's a good it, point. <laughs> it's the, you know, if you're going to get your message across, at least be titillated, or if you're going to get your message across, better it better be funny. Yeah, well, there is that screaming sex scene in this one. I mean, yeah, there. Uh, <laughs> it's the loudest thing since Jerry Maguire with the woman screaming, "Don't ever stop fucking me." <laughs> Yeah, um, you're right, because my mind did go to De Palma for a second when we were talking about dark comedy and and JFK. So there are those moments in, what is it, in Greetings, There's uh, when Garrett Graham is laying out everything. And then also it's interesting that you brought a blowout because the assassination and attempt or all the machinations are happening in Philadelphia in that one. It's also interesting to see how this does sit on the bubble of conspiracies, like how... This is obviously a product of 70s conspiracy thrillers. And then when you get into the 80s, I mean, you had, like I mentioned, you know, at the top of the show, you had this like kind of avalanche of British conspiracy movies with like Defense of the Realm and Hidden Agenda and The Whistleblower and movies like that. But there was also in the US, they were kind of taking on a different tone. They were taking on this kind of less political but more institutional view of conspiracy abuse of power like if you look at a movie like well silkwood which was based on true story but even if you look at things like blue thunder which was you know this mix of an action film but also a conspiracy film where you know the the cops were building a helicopter basically take out the minorities and you had the star chamber where you know people were yeah i think of that judge and and um even even a movie like project x or war games or and if you want to go really out there they live it was kind of like our now we can't trust our institutions as opposed to just the government right like it's like it is like the net is starting to broaden so that by the 90s it's like and you can't trust technology right <laughs> Well, it's interesting that the government really doesn't have a stake in this movie, that it is not Nick getting thwarted by the FBI, the CIA, the, the anybody else, that it's just his own damn family that are the ones who are the, really the enemies in this. And it's nice, too, that we don't ever see his brother, that we get those uh, those great 
POV shots of from the brothers POV, but we never actually get to see him. So we don't see this doesn't fetishize the, the actual moment of the assassination like a JFK. The closest we get is when he looks out the window down into the plaza while he's holding the rifle and he can imagine in his head what's going on. But we don't see that either. So it's nice that we stay away from that. And we stay in the present with Nick other than those flashbacks. Yeah, no back into the left. Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> I think if they had recreated that, there would have there would have been a, a big backlash by by folks. Well, and wasn't that wasn't that the reason that the movie was pulled from the theater? Or that's kind of like the what Richard thought that was the reason that Avco Embassy pulled the movie because you know, they that the Kennedy family were suppressing <laughs> the movie for well, political I- reasons. I think in his commentary, he said that Avco had some defense contracts and they just kind of. Right. So the government doesn't need to censor you. Their companies will censor themselves. So where do you think this places us in the conspiracy theories and film or, or, you know, conspiracy movies today? Like other than Mr. Robot and, you know, (laughs) is there a place for this or is it just the real world now is so consumed by anti-vaxxers and chemtrail people and, you know, Barack, believing Barack Obama was a Muslim and 9-11. Like, we don't need conspiracy theories in the movies anymore because we live them now every day. Well, Dinesh D'Souza would probably disagree with you on that. Okay, wow. And Steve Bannon. There was a spate of those for a while when it was um, – the, the whole backlash against being observed, being spied upon. There was, what, Eagle Eye. There were the, um, I'm trying to remember the one with, I think it was Christian Haydenson or might have been Ryan Felipe, where it was like the Skull and Bone Society. There were... Right. Oh, the skulls? Yeah, so there were... Skulls. Those were going on. There were the computers are going to ruin your life probably 10 years before that with things like the net. But, um, yeah, right now, I can't think of anything that I've seen recently where it's just like, oh, yeah, Big Brother's going to get you. I mean, Get Out is as close as I can think, you know. it's what... We're okay. <laughs> Although, yeah, we're all okay. Well, unless you watch documentaries, right? <laughs> like, then, then you get the Inside Job, and you get Citizen Four, and you get all those movies that basically... Yeah, maybe, maybe that's the new conspiracy genre for us is documentaries because we now live in that reality well documentaries and then again to dinesh d'souza and and steve bannon the fake documentaries and now it's sometimes it's tough to tell what you're watching and you have to look up the people who are making the films before you even start to watch them because the agendas are really what's being sold more than the actual story yeah it's creepy i mean how many versions of loose change have been released over the last you know 15 years or some variation of the Protocols of Zion. Before we jump to the break, I do want to talk about the end a little bit. And I'm curious, what do you guys think is going to happen 10 minutes, 10 days, 10 years after the end of this film? Well, I think I already mentioned, I think he becomes the president. We saw the contender. He does say, I'm part of the family. And then that Hail to the Chief riff kind of plays a little bit as he's walking out of the, the building. Well, I guess the future is up to John Cerruti. If we believe Pa Kagan <laughs> on that, you know, that John Cerruti will make that choice. And I guess it depends how much of a grudge he holds for having his arms broken. <laughs> well, he set up this podcast, didn't he? He did. 
Right, he did. Richard uh, sells a version of this movie on his website that he calls the director's cut and as far as i could tell there's one extra shot in this movie and that comes so we don't go back to yvette's answering machine at the end of the film instead we have nick walking through the park and that scene carries on just a little bit longer and the woman on the bicycle comes back one more time so we don't know if nick is even going to make it out of that park alive I like the idea that Nick uh, grows a mustache, moves to Southern California, and becomes a gigolo. Oh, wait, that's that's Cutter's way. Never mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was thinking that he just starts getting high all the time <laughs> and, 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 takes up, and takes up bowling. <laughs> Either that or he resurrects his brother and they, they form a piano duo. I mean, one thing it does do is uh, it does make me wonder why Jeff Bridges never broke out as a leading man back when he was young. I mean, Hollywood sure tried its damnness over and over and over and over again. And, and you know, obviously some films he did solid in and others uh, less. So but he never he never quite got where you thought he was where the industry seemed to think he was going. It's funny you mentioned I, I have his IMDb page and, and looking at it now, because I was going through the, obviously what he was going through in the seventies, but yeah, he, he, I think he wanted, I want to give him credit for kind of sticking to his guns on certain projects. I mean, obviously like this, he, he really stuck through thick and thin to get this film made, but uh, you know, he also did something like Cutter's Way, and and then worked with uh, Cimino and Heaven's Gate, and you know, did Tron, and of course got a ridiculous paycheck for the sequel to Tron. But even something as generic as Kiss Me Goodbye, I mean, I'm sure he was probably doing something that would get him visible, and then something that he really cared about. And even the stuff that he was doing for the studio wasn't doing all that well. I mean, right, somebody killed her husband, or Kiss Me Goodbye, the odds or. Yeah. Yeah, but that's the thing. He never really caught on with that's why I'm saying why do you think he never caught on with the public? There because there was something that I mean it was clear Hollywood wanted to make him a star. He's in so many well supported studio films and for whatever reason he never seemed to ignite the way some of his contemporaries did. I mean, I really respect him for some of the stuff that he did, like um, like this one. The American Success Company is really quirky. I love him in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. And, and I have to say, he does drag really well. Oh, he's a <laughs> good-looking guy. It's amazing how many good films he's in, actually. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and how good he is consistently in them. You know, I think of American Heart in the 90s where – borderline indie that he was in that I think uh, also showed what a terrific actor he is. I mean, that and, and what a range he had. Yeah, I think, well, I think part of it is coming from a Hollywood family, always having a really good reputation. We always like him, even if we don't maybe necessarily like the, the film itself. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't until, and I guess, you know, he was in for the long haul. So it's it's like anybody can be pretty when they're 20, but when you're in your 40s and 50s and you have you have some years and you have some gray and you have some experience, then I think that's really obviously when the more interesting choices come up. We're going to take a break and play an interview with director William Reichert, and we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. 
it's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now, I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. music-related movies. <laughs> iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com <laughs> The See Here Podcast It's a blast I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. You like classic movies, how about classic TV? Over at Forgotten TV, I've covered everything from obscure Saturday morning TV to short-lived shows like Otherworld, The Phoenix, The Highwayman, and Cliffhangers. You can find the show over at Forgotten.tv or at all the usual podcast places. I hope you'll join me soon at Forgotten TV. How did you decide to just kind of hop on a bus and take it out to Hollywood? I mean, what was the motivation for that? Oh, well, I acted in Star Lodge 17 at Evanston Township High School, and I absolutely loved it. And also, I was in the musical, uh, you know, Oklahoma, and I played the part that um, I directed his son years later, and I can't remember his name either. Eddie Albert played it. <laughs> so then I was acting bitten, and they... Uh, I know, I even remember more. I They had a talent contest. 
that was uh, in the Chicago Tribune. And a man named Hall Bartlett had made a movie with Sidney Poitier and Alan Ladd. Anyway, it was Hall Bartlett, Sidney Poitier, and Alan Ladd. And they, they said that the actors who won the uh, acting contest would uh, get a uh, free introduction to a Hollywood agent via Hall Bartlett. So uh, I went and I won the contest. It was a black guy and a white guy. And I was the white guy that was in Chicago. So anyway, I won. And uh, Hall Bartlett said, if you come out to Hollywood, I will uh, get you uh, a screen test. And so another screen test, right? I had one there. So anyway, uh, I worked at a uh, at a local restaurant and saved up my money and took a Greyhound bus to California right after graduating at 17. And then I, oh, well, I first left home at 15. I, when we lived in Arlington, Virginia, I hitchhiked across the country with a guy named, who, who said, my name's Chuck and I'm a duck and I don't give a quack. And he had a 35 Ford Roadster and I lived off and on, I was going to, I was, it was my uh, junior year at uh, Washington Lee High School in Arlington, Virginia, where I went after I left the Queen of Apostles Seminary in Madison, Wisconsin, which was based on St. Palatine, who used to eat the pus from the dying people in the plague. And I went there at 13 to get out of Marietta, Georgia, where I was constantly getting in big fights with uh, Southern guys who called me Yank. I mean, it was an amazing time. And, you know, so... So from you know, so at fifteen I left home the first time and spent you know months hitchhiking around the country reading poetry. I was a big poet. I read co- poetry from Coffee and Confusion. But outside of the uh, Eastern world, nobody's really interested in a kid from the East who reads poems. And then I worked on a road gang in Colorado. A lot to do at fifteen, and I carried a painting. This is what beat poets did. Some poets. Said, would you if you're going to go to California? Would you bring this to my girl? I said, sure. I didn't realize <laughs> what a drag carrying a painting. Because then this guy Chuck, I said, who drove the 35 Ford Roadster, and it was freezing because it didn't have a top. Now I'm, I'm thinking about it. You know, 15, you don't realize that when you're leaving Virginia to go to L.A., you need a car that has a top on it. But uh, I left him in Watkins, Colorado. Last time I saw Chuck. And hitchhiked on to L.A. and Long Beach, where I had this painting that I carried all that way. All these cars and different, you know, amazing. I mean, I had to. I remember one time because when you know, I went to a flop house and said, uh, you know, can I get a room here? And the guy said, well, if you mop the floors, and it was part of it. And they had a little restaurant part of it. I said, sure. So I mopped the floors, and, and then I sat down, and, and he, I think he gave me two bucks for that. And then I said, uh, you know, so I, I ordered a rest, you know, rest uh, restaurant. I ordered food. It was a restaurant. And I was sitting on a stool and this guy ordered and, and, and I was looking at the mem- menu. And um, then he said, the bacon looks good. And I said, no, nah, I can't. And he said, and so, so, and then he ordered. And while I was looking, the waiter came and bought his food, right? And he slid it next to me in front of me. All the stuff I wanted. Things like that happened when you're on the road, you know, when you're a kid. But I was lucky I wasn't killed. And today, I mean, today you couldn't do that, you know. But I mean, I really did hitchhike. Who was 66. So later on, when it's 17, I went to L.A. and, uh, you know, stayed in a rooming house with my savings and uh, got a, eventually got a job as a messenger at a PR firm. At, uh, and by then I was turning 18. One of the things about my age situation, which I realized thinking about River all these years later, was that I was always a year behind in school. Because I started school. In other words, I graduated. I was still 16 when I was a senior in high school. 
and I turned 17 in November, right? But most of the kids entered at 17 or turned eight. In other words, I was like, because my mother put me in kindergarten or first grade a year younger than all the other kids, I was always a year younger in everything I did. So I made all the fight because I went to different orphanages. You know, I grew up, I was went to uh, orphanages. I was raised mostly in orphanages, partly in orphanages, like in uh, Deep South, St. Joseph's Home for Boys. And Washington, Georgia was my eighth grade. Um, St. Patrick's Mission in Anadarko, Oklahoma. It was my seventh grade. And that was a great place because I lived with uh, Kiowa and, and uh, the Comanche and Apache Indians. And some of the kids were, boys were the sons of chiefs because they wanted the chiefs wanted their kids to be educated. The Apaches and the Kiowa built me a square to be there for the white man. But they never, did, it, it, they were the kindest, sweetest people I ever met, really. Now I think about it. Never had a fight, never nothing. Now hardly ever raised their voices. They listened and they all slept in the dorm and they would just pop out of bed, we'd get dressed. And I, I don't remember too much of the classes, but for the rest of the afternoon, we were in, the, there was a little kind of oasis in Oklahoma desert of these trees. And uh, we would play cowboys and Indians. Wow. But the uh, Indians got a bum rap, man, in this country, just like uh, they're making the other natives, including us or me anyway feel a hardship and sting of the white man. You started that project with the president's daughters when you were 19 years old. Is that right? No, 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 no. That was when I started writing Jimmy Reardon. That's when I wrote a night note. No, no, no. I started that, but it was only five or six years later, four or five years later that I was uh, at Westinghouse, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, it was pretty young in a way. I mean, by 18, I was basically the main writer for the Steve Allen show in publicity. And I was writing, um, you know, Every single, from Cab Calloway to uh, Buddy Hackett to, I used to smoke cigarettes all the time. You know, I left my heart in San Francisco. What the fuck is his name? You know, the famous, famous Italian singer who's now 100 and keeps singing. And, you know, Tony Bennett and I used to smoke cigarettes. He was at the show all the time. And Tammy was played by Debbie Reynolds. I'm not sure. I remember one night Debbie Reynolds was like talking to me and asking me where I lived and all this shit. And Tony says, Hey, Debbie's only 17 years old. <laughs> but a lot of stuff. It was, but Steve Allen was my, uh, I became very good friends of his because I took the show to, uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. I mean, I was the publicist on the show. And I remember, uh, you know, it's fun to remember these things. So it was a St. Paul, Minneapolis winter, hey, winter festival. They have a big St. Paul, Minneapolis winter thing with it. And, uh, and, and there was an amphitheater. And Steve Arino was being welcomed into the amphitheater. And I walked him to the edge of the, uh, the circle, right? And Steve turned and he just, and oh, Steve, you know, and he turned and looked at me. It was like at the edge of a giant stadium, like a football stadium or something. He looked at me and said, Bill, how old are you? I said, I'm 19, which is a total lie. <laughs> now that I think about it, he says, you're going to have an amazing life. Just walked into the thing. That was Steve Allen. He was a great man, actually. Steve Allen did You Aren't There, you know, when he used to, and he was, uh, sane. He, the, the society for the, anyway, he was very much anti-nuclear stuff long before that was popular, which years, years later, I manifested in stuff that I write today. And, uh, but no, so then it was a Steve Allen show, then I, you know, and that was owned by Westinghouse Broadcasting, which owned Mike Douglas and a whole bunch of other, uh, you know, really interesting programming. And uh, so they brought me to New York, and I became a speechwriter there for Don McGannon, who was the president of the company, which great gave me great 
uh, power and authority within a broadcast company. Because if you're a speechwriter for the president, you know, you have a certain, I could do anything because nobody knew what I was doing. <laughs> right. And, uh, but while I was there, I investigated, I took Margaret Truman to, to, uh, I, I sort of helped arrange meetings and conferences. I didn't arrange them really, but I was the babysitter for like Margaret, you know, uh, what's her name? And for Alexander Corda. I mean, just a whole bunch of amazing, you know, also, also Bob Dylan. And also David Frost, they spent a whole afternoon with a guy I never seen before, and Bob Dylan. And, uh, they told me that the kids, that we were doing a series called The Meaning of Communism. And they told me that the kids wanted somebody named Bob Dylan because not, we really didn't know that much about him at that time. So I went there and, uh, showed up about three or four hours earlier and he was, you know, arrived just a little bit after I got there for the shoot. And I'm, I'm watching this guy and, um, he said, uh, I'm putting this contraption. I said, how do you do that? And she said, she said put it, it rested on my chest here. I said, you rest on Oh, I see. You do that. And then what? And they go, oh, yeah. He says, you didn't get any. Said, I'd like to have a, a glass of wine. I said, sure. So she said, I said, do you, do you drink before you <laughs> drink? Because he was a young guy like my age. Right? I said, do you drink before you uh, do these? He says, oh, I always have a couple of glasses. I said, well, let's have a bottle. I'm not. We had a bottle and, you know, we're talking and uh, I'm asking, I forget where he lives and I'm down in Chelsea and I'm up in a, that's how we're talking, you know, and um, I said, well, they, these guys really loved you. They really wanted you to play, you know, and I mean, I went through a lot of stuff to get here. He said, oh, I'm glad, you know, and we got he's putting shit together. And then suddenly the lights go on and how many years must I live before they go everywhere? Wow. I guess I said after what I said, hey man, you're gonna be a big star. This is incredible. I just remember. I mean, I'm feeling that again because I don't think about these things very often, though. Because I basically do not. I jettison uh, the years behind me all the time. So it was around that time that I contacted Margaret Truman, and I forget how I got in touch with her. But I said, I want to, you know, I would love to talk to you about an idea I have about interviewing all the president's daughters about their fathers as men and how they related to them because daughters have a special place. She said, well, you know, no one's ever asked me those questions before. I said, really? She says, um, we should have lunch. I said, sure. How about Sardi? She said, oh, I love it. So I ended up having lunch with Margaret Truman and Sardi. And she's drinking my TVs and I'm drinking scotch with milk because I convinced myself that because I drank a lot in those days. I drank almost, I rarely stayed home in those. I, I used to go because I was a philanderer of the highest order and I, it, it, different apartments in, it, with great women. And a lot of times I didn't have, I, cause I was remembered yesterday that I didn't have clothes all the time to wear to a meeting and stuff. So I'd go buy some. And I used to go to, uh, Bergdorf's to buy, cause they have a great shirt department. You wouldn't believe that. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's there anymore. But then I met the girl who was running the shirt department who lived in New Jersey. Her father, his father was a huge kind of, Republican character. He wasn't, I didn't know about Republicans that much. Anyway, I ended up getting Margaret Truman helped me get to, um, Catherine Graham on the Washington Post. And then, and, and also, um, I got, uh, was talking to, uh, you know, Linda and Lucy Johnson and their representatives and then Anna Roosevelt. And then I got, and then I got a call from, uh, and I lived in a, you know, a walk up on Third Avenue in Manhattan with a steam thing. So the steam heat is thing. And I've had a couple of meetings with Jerry Vanderhoff, who was Pat Nixon's secret, press secretary, because, uh, you know, I called it. I remember I was in uh, Texas 
got to interview Lucy Johnson, Lucy Nugent, which was the most extraordinary interview I, I ever made or heard of. I mean, really, she's well, just one thing I never forgot because the king, I, I said to her, so how did you find out that the president was shot? And she said, well, I was in school. I was in, uh, I was in the national cathedral school and I was in class and all of a sudden the alarms on the campus began to ring and there were two men who appeared at the door and the teacher said, Lucy, they're, you know, they're from the government and they want to see you. And she said, I, I, I got up and I, I looked at them and they motioned for me to come with them. And so as we were walking off the campus, they said that the president had been shot. And I said, well, how's my father? They said, well, he's going to be coming back to Washington soon, but you have to go. We have to take you home. So we went back to where we were living then. And, and uh, I said, well, what did you do? She said, well, uh, I changed my clothes and I put on my best dress. I said, you did? She said, yes. I said, oh. She said, and of course, I, I, I took a shower and I made myself real presentable. And I said, oh. She said, yeah, because my daddy always liked his women to look like ladies. And I tell you, the camera, even now, I, it's not quite as good as she said it because I haven't really tried to repeat it in all these years. But the ca- I look back and the camera the, got tears and just, it was amazing to hear that. Yeah. Of course, Trisha Nixon says to me, uh, you know, and, and the night before I'm, I'm interviewing Al, Anna Roosevelt in Washington I'm at the, in Georgetown at her house. She's telling me stories about her father, and she's in Washington at that particular moment coming from her house. I think they had a house in uh, New York, upstate New York. Well, yeah, I guess well, I could just look it up, wherever they were, but it's some, forget where it was. It was not Long Island, but it was somebody. Anyway, they had a house in New York where the Roosevelt lived, and she was in Washington to, go, to, to march against the White House the next day. And three days later, I was in the Red Room interviewing Julie Eisenhower Nixon. And I walked in and there's David Eisenhower, his grandson of Eisenhower, because I asked 110 questions and uh, of each of the daughters, roughly 100, 150 I had on my list. And he said, well, I've gone through the questions, uh, uh, Bill. And, uh, you know, I just uh, kind of uh, put a line through the ones that we thought might not be appropriate. And I said, well, you know, and I'm going to tell you and Julie uh, and Julie there. And I said, this is, you know, our, our deal. He said, nothing, I, I will do nothing. And I will have nothing said that you don't approve of. Um, this is not a, a, you know, this is, you've got to like this as much as I do. Cause I'm not out to catch you in anything. And this is not, uh, this is historical between daughters and fathers and it's personal. And that's the point. So if you don't mind, I'll just ask these questions and you can answer them and you'll have an opportunity later to, you know, cross it out on your own with the film. Does that, would that be okay? And he said, well, and she said, sure. <laughs> So, but he was a lawyer. Oh, she said my husband's a lawyer. So I asked all the questions. And years and and I didn't mean to get into the president's daughter so much, but but years later, I also thought, Jesus Christ! I mean, you know, that was my first interview. I never done an interview before, but I you know certainly watched Steve do it and all the other uh, you know guys at Westinghouse. But Julie then proceeds to tell me stuff like you know how heroic stuff like he broke his elbow. When they almost slipped on the ice when she was three or four, and rather than have her fall, her father broke his elbow to keep her off the ice. And I thought, whoa. And then, and I said, well, you know, what was it like when he won the, won the election? She said, oh, it was great. She said, we, he brought us here. We, we came, we got out of the car. And he said, come on. We, he, he ran with us right in the front doors. And she said, we ran up and down the halls. He said, come here. I'll show you. 
say this and say this. Of course, we've been there before, but we've never, you know, this is where we're going to live now. And she said, and he w- walked out, and we walked out and looked in the back lawn, and the fountain was there, and Dad said, come on, let's go upstairs. She said, so he took us upstairs, and there was a place upstairs which was a, a little attic, and, and General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, would never let Dad up there. So the first thing Dad says is, come on, let's go into the Eisenhower's closet, and so he did. And I wrote about that years later in uh, my first uh, version of uh, President Lopes when then Sorkin used all that. But that's another whole story. So anyway, she's telling me this. And then I was talking to her. Oh, and she said, he kept saying, can, can you can, can you believe we're here? And I remember the way she said that. I said, wow. And so she says, uh, so I said, well, what what's his day like? I said, do you, do you talk? She said, oh, we talk to him every day almost. He talks to us about it with every speech. I said, really? Oh, yes, she said. He, he relies on us because he can trust us. You know, we don't really trust the press that much here i said oh then i says well what do you um when you eat i said do you, and one of the questions was like oh she said he eats cottage cheese <laughs> he's laughing he almost only eats cottage cheese i said really she said well for lunch and for dinner she said, he only eats cottage cheese for lunch and dinner and she's laughing she said well he eats it with ketchup now i did he eat cottage cheese with ketchup and 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 she said, and I said at the end of the day, is he? She said yes, and but he, you know, he he also loves his loves red wine. His dad loves his red wine. I said he does. And she said yeah. Every, almost every afternoon at the end of the day, he goes upstairs and he he has red wine and he listens to Montavani on his earphone. Now you got to remember, I'm sitting in the red room in the White House. It's 1969. It's the height of the war in Vietnam. And I'm just finding out from her that the president's living on cottage cheese and ketchup and drinking wine. And people know he's a drunk. And I knew he was a, well, well, see, the other side, I knew he was a drunk because, the, oh, because one of those calls from the White House with the scene room was from Jerry Vanderhoof. He says, I, I just met with the president. He wants to know if he can help you sell this. I said, what? She said, he, the, pre- the president would like to know if he could help you set this up at a network. He, he has friends at the networks. I said, sure, that would be fantastic. But none of the, you know, because this whole thing is a William Richard production. But in order to get the president, they asked me to take in a partner named Ann Duggan. And that was the thing that eventually did it in, the whole thing. Because I interviewed the Lucy and Linda. And, and my thought now, one of the things I'm going to work on is I, it's only four weeks ago that I discover a trove of documents, which I thought were lost because I came back from a, a boat trip around uh, Star Island and uh, various parts of Miami when I was down there writing Winter Kills with, you know, uh, the drug, one of the first major American drug lords of all time, huge, very rich guy. And I'm staying at one of his houses down there. And, and then uh, I get involved. Then I met Laura and I'm staying on a boat off Key Biscayne where B.B. Raposo is flying in with cocaine and airplanes that aren't checked by cops. This is all real shit. So I go on a boat ride with Hamilton Fish one day. Hamilton comes to pick me up on a little replica of the France that I happened to go, I happened to, when I published uh, Jimmy Reardon, I used it, my money to take the France to, to, to Paris uh, and then went to London. But so but now it's like, so then I must be like, trying to figure out how old I am. 20s. Anyway, I'm still, I think, I forgot all of it. But so Hamilton, my friend, Hamilton Fish is the publisher of the nation. He became the publisher, I think, when he was only 26. Arrives in a cigarette boat from Miami. I get out of the cigarette boat. We go to another boat, and there's Daniel Ellsberg and the president and the uh, mayor of Miami. So we take this trip because Ham wants me to give the outtake 
of my president's daughter. So I'm, I'm cutting to four or five years after, or three or four years after 1969, because I get a call from Don Hewitt while we're working on this. This is a whole book in itself. But anyway, Don Hewitt calls and says, Bill, we just went to the White House with Dixon plant and we showed it uh, to people at the White House. And I said, oh, yeah. I said, was, uh, was Dean there and Alderman? And he said, well, they were there. And, and but, you know, the Roger Ailes was, he said, well, and, and so was the president. He said, the president likes this. I said, oh, he said, Bill, the president and, uh, and uh, his media man, Roger Ailes, really do not like this. So we are not going to be using uh, the Nixons in the showing. Not going to. Well, I said, but that's, you know, half of what we shot. We still got out. He said, uh, he said, Bill, we don't have the footage anymore. Oh, I said, well, thank you very much, Don. I figured we'll figure this out, all of this out later. He said, yes, we will. And, 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 and Bill, we'd like to keep working with you. I said, well, Don, you know, right? You know, he said, right, Bill. And I had huge fights with Don Hewitt. You know, he wore a, uh, you know, white, uh, he had a great white trench coat and we had things like he would say, like, uh, we're not doing any more. Uh, racial di- documentary insights right now. I said, you're not, because we're not covering the racism. Uh, uh, I forgot how we put it. He said, because it's counterproductive. Said, how can it be counterproductive? So, but, but they wouldn't show me because my, I, I got into an argument with Ann, oh, I didn't mention, Ann Duggan turns out to be the Mexican. I don't know if she was Mexican. She might not want to be Mexican, but I love Mexicans. But anyway, like uh, Trump says, I love Mexicans. But anyway, she looked like Doris, Dolores Leo. After I heard her talking a couple of times, standing next to this woman who looked like Dolores Del Rito, very, very, you know, Latin beauty, shining black hair, kind of no, she was kind of famous because she shot or tried to shoot her husband, Tom Duggan, who was a conservative columnist at that time. But anyway, and, and, and I should have known the first time she told me how, you know, uh, Richard left her house after taking a shower and made that speech, you know, that famous checker speech, but it was Ann Duggan's bathroom that he left. And so I listened to her. Oh, so one of the things they wanted was it, but they thought it would be much easier for everybody if I just had, you know, worked with Ann Duggan and she would help me raise money because I'm doing all this without any money. I'm, you know, a freelance writer, basically, because I wouldn't let Westinghouse put me on salary. So, uh, you know, I earned whatever I got. And I, my $500 out of my Bill Richards bank account paid you know, Julie Eisenhower Nixon in the White House, her $500. And what I just found four weeks ago was the fucking contract. So all these years that they said, oh, that never happened. We didn't do any interviews like those. That's a mistake, you know, you know, whatever, right? Because I had people try. That was all a cover up. Of, so I, my first big problem in the movie business was me. Ver- oh, so I'm listening to Ann Duggan tell him that he's among idiots with Haldeman and Ehrlichman. And she's saying, and Roger Ailes is the worst. I'm listening, I'm standing here like I'm talking to you right now, only I was with her and she's telling that and the other end is it. And, and, now with Nixon talking, he said, no, no, you've got it all wrong. That's not right. And, no, and, and he's talking like that. And she said, well, you got to get it together. And, you know, and then after, and I realize that they've been fucking each other for years and uh, nobody knows this. And maybe nobody ever will, except you and me. And, you know, because I wrote about this recently that about her being his mistress, but I didn't actually go into it because now I got these contracts and I got to put them up as soon as I can. All the signed contracts are the president's daughters. 
And uh, but the great shit was Linda Robb talking about what it was like with her marriage. The great shit was all the pictures I saw of Lyndon Johnson playing with his kids with his watch in the White House. And, you know, and Linda telling me how it was a prison and they could never go anywhere they wanted to go. And nobody ever invited dad out to dinner, you know. I said, nobody. She said, who wants the president of the United States coming to dinner to your house? It's not much of a private affair, is it? And I said, no, I never really. She said, no, we called it the prison. But anyway, and, 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 you know, and Alice Longworth reading the dirty poems written by Harding. It was incredible. A little group of, of, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know, kids came while, while we were talking to, to tour part of the house and meet Catherine Graham. And, and, and Alice Longworth and I are getting completely fucking drunk. It was, I mean, I, I think I stayed there for three or four hours, which is a fairly long time before. They, and they came and they had, she said, Catherine came in. She had just gone to see the other people out. She said, well, now they're gone. But she said, honey, I, dear, you really should go to bed now. And she said, but we're having such a good time. <laughs> ah, see, one of the, I really hated that I never got to finish those interviews because of weird fucking Nixon, you see. And oh, and Trisha. You know, because just from going from the roses of Anna Roosevelt telling me how, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the middle of the World War II, in the height of the crisis, you know, everything bombs are flying all over Europe. A drunken guy walked across the White House, walked right up there, took the elevator and walked right into her father's office. She imitated him. She said, Mr. President, you've got to stop the war. She says, oh, my dad said, well, sit down. And he talked to him. She said, but. My dad was the kind of man that we don't have anymore. It was amazing what we would have got. So I don't even talk. So I went back after I'll cut right back to the uh, going back with ham fish. And so uh, then I thought, well, because uh, I had. Oh, so then what happened once the Nixon once once the Nixons uh, got wind that I was uh, half in love with the Roosevelt, Richard Nixon. And he also found out that. You know, Catherine Graham was behind helping me put this together with Margaret Truman. At the same time, the Washington Post is trying to get him in peace. Can you imagine? And then the woman, Anne, who used to, you know, drink red wine too, had a couple of glasses of wine with that last conversation with the president. And combining that with her sleeping pills that she took a little earlier, she walked over to the couch and just slumped over it and fell right into it. You know, so, you know, she's completely out of it. This is a, and she just talked to the president of the United States. Obviously, so and she had an apartment at 57th Street in Manhattan, off Sixth Avenue. I'll never forget. It was all silvery because her apartment was all silver. It was like uh, May West on steroids. And she had a heart-shaped bed, so I picked her off the couch and moved her into a bedroom. And while I'm carrying her across the room, this uh, flimsy uh, robe that she's silk and robe thing falls open. And I can't really pull it back up, so I put it down in bed, and I cover up and uh, leave. So I don't mean I've just put the president because I got to write about it. I, I thought of the other day, putting the president's mistress to bed, right? And so the next day, we have another conversation, a meeting, and I said, boy, I said, I got to tell you, <laughs> and you have really got great breath. She said, what? I said, well, I put you to bed last night. I couldn't help. She said, what? You saw my breath? You shouldn't have done that. I said, "Oh, come on, man! I just was—I was putting you—you you were putting me to bed." So now we get now all of a sudden uh, she's not going to pay the cameraman, and the cameraman is holding on to the footage that we shot. So I can't get the footage, 
And then she goes into some kind of a, she gets, I forget the, she got this lawyer and she's going to have to arbitrate because I'm not dealing with the contract. I don't even remember the excuse, but I knew that it was the president of the United States now had to think that I'm fondling his mistress. I'm being backed by Catherine Graham of the Washington Post. <laughs> and it's, and also Trisha Nixon has said stuff like, well, you know, all these marchers, she said, are, uh, going to get noticed. I mean, she said, we know every single one of them. I said, you know, all, I said, uh, Trisha, there are thousands of people. She said, yes, but we know who they are. She said, there's a core, three or four hundred of them, and they're the ones that organize all the others. And we've got their names. I said, oh, I'm, so then at the book, I said to her, how did you get the names of all these people? She said, well, we get them from the FBI. And it was like, you know, now I'm realizing that what, what Julie and Tricia are both, uh, oh, I said to her, I said, uh, I said to Tricia, Julie says that, uh, your father confers with you. She said, well, we're the ones he really talks to about a lot of what he does because we have the touch with, you know, young people all across America. I go, you know, my, in my college, she said in, in different dorms, we have girls from all over the country. We have a girl from Hawaii. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the green room in the White House. It's the middle of the war. And I'm finding out that the president of the United States really is mostly talking to his daughters and getting drunk every night listening to Montemont. So whatever else was going on at that time with all the tape. Oh, you know, and I had lunch with Rosemary Woods, who was his secretary at Watergate of all places, because she lived at Watergate. And during the lunch, she's telling me, about how the communists in Mexico City are really going to get, you know, I forgot how she put I said, communists? She said, well, yes, they're, yes, they're all communists. I said, are you telling me that Mexico's a communist? It's, may I say, that it sounds to me like you're saying that you think that Mexico is a communist country. She said, well, it is. So there's a lot of stuff that, that came out of those interviews. And when I went back, setting back, and I went back to, Look at the, you know, I went back to my apartment after writing, you know, because I'm writing uh, Winter Kills for a drug lord. I'm preparing, uh, you know, I forget where I was with, with uh, Law and Disorder, which is all, you know, with, with Ivan Passer, who had just left uh, Communist Europe. That was his first, you know, American movie. And uh, I'm realizing I'm dealing with these, and I drink every night, and I'm, you know, oh, man, I'm shit. I'm working with a drug lord, and I'm thinking, so I go home and, 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 the, and the tapes are all gone. My apartment has been broken into. I've got a water gate. And, uh, and the only thing, uh, gone was the outtakes, all the files relating to the president's daughters. And I had some incredible Moroccan hats. And, and my old uh, girlfriend reminded me uh, a while ago that she said, well, you remember you had it in a file cabinet under H. And so, and uh, everything was locked up. I had, uh, you know, in New York, we have police locks those days. I don't know if they still have police locks, but you can't get in that fucking place. That was all gone. So after I went back from the Daniel Elzer thing to think about a way to get, because I was bound and determined I was not going to get, because going to get into a situation where people were going to be saying that Bill Richard, uh, the guy who's working for a drug lord, claims to have had the rights to these women, but look at him. And I also wasn't going to get in a situation where a brick of coke is in my New York apartment, and I can't explain it, but I got to go to jail anyway. Oh, and I also, my beautiful editor, Barbara Connell, had taken some of the footage to England where she thought the BBC might show it, and she was killed. And uh, Barbara Connell was, uh, you know, 
uh, was a CBS correspondent for Viet in Vietnam. She jumped out of fucking helicopters. She was the editor, and and Hewitt wouldn't allow me to see the shit that they sent to the White House because by about oh sixty minutes got a, I got it out of an ar- arbitration with the woman who was his mistress. So a whole thing went to 60 Minutes, and now I realize, and if you look at 60 Minutes and 60, all these years, and how they get all this great exclusive shit, like with Trump and everything, right after he's elected, goes to 60 Minutes, they're in his pocket. Uh, you know, however, and so somewhere that footage is still there. And the new head of 60 Minutes, said, we've never, ever not done a story because of pressure. Well, I got one that didn't do. And now that I got these, uh, what do you think? You know, these contracts from Julie, and I got Trisha, and I got Anna Roosevelt, and I got Margaret Truman. And, uh, you know, so I, this is now they're not going to be able to say, oh, he's not telling the truth, you know, which is, what, you know what I mean? That's, that's what I'm, one of the things I'm working on is uh, over the next few weeks, I want to just, I got to still scan them and put them up. But the story is real. And uh, somebody, when I put up, just a little bit of it said that, you know, maybe Julie will do the right thing. And after all these years, it just occurred to me that, you know, they may want to get these things out. Maybe Julie Nixon would say, yes, I did that. And Trisha would say, yes, I did that. I said those things because they were only kids then, you know, and then I'll be able to get the real and the real great stuff was Lucy and and Linda Roth talking about, the you know, going into the White House with their father. Yeah, so that was all, that all happened by the time I was in my early mid twenties, you know, because then I produced and wrote Law and Disorder with Yvonne and, um, wow, that was all by 1974. Well, you worked with Yvonne on Law and Order and, or Law and Disorder and also Crime and Passion. And I'm curious, you also worked with Fred Caruso on that. Who did you meet first, Fred Caruso or Yvonne Passer? Well, I didn't work on Crime of Passion. Ace Up My Sleeve, I think it was also known as. How did you know that? I thought I, I didn't get any credit on that. That's what I'm going about to uh, put up now is how that. Well, if that's true and I'm on there somehow, because the other thing is uh, my old girlfriend from that period sent me some of the postcards that I sent to her from Zurs and from Vienna when I was writing that script. Because Yvonne called me in, uh, you know, practically the middle of the night and said, you want to come to Vienna? I'm making a movie. Well, I can show you more about directing. And I was interested in that. So I got on a plane, and the next thing I know, I was given three scripts written by these English couple. None of them were shootable. So, you know, after a day in Vienna, we were heading for the ski slopes where we were going to shoot the picture. And I was starting to, you know, and uh, we were trying to figure out how to write a whole movie from, you know, just locations. We were going to throw out the whole script. And we did. And I ended up in various locations, rewriting the screenplay for locations. And every day we'd find out what the, the location was. And I would write the scene for that location with Omar Sharif and Karen Black. And it sort of worked. I don't know. I, I had never, I think I saw the movie once in London. And uh, so anyway, yeah, I didn't know that I got, yes, I, no, I had known Yvonne, uh, Fred Caruso was production manager for Law and Disorder. And that's where I met Fred. I was the producer on Law and Disorder and I hired Fred as production manager. So, and, and Fred was involved in uh, Ace of My Sleep. But he was involved with The Happy Hooker, which I know you wrote. He produced The Happy Hooker. So after, uh, so I remember uh, they, somebody came over and they gave me a new... Uh, Pete Brunfalo was one of the uh, assistants on Law and Disorder production. I mean, he was associate producer. He's an, anyway, he said, I found this typewriter. And so I must have been, I must have been uh, agreed to write 
I can't. So anyway, I wrote the Happy Hooker in nine days in Fred's house in New Jersey, nonstop, really drinking like a, you know, and uh, improvising it. And I, yeah, it's, uh, the funny thing was getting uh, Lynn Redgrave to, to play that because she's kind of straight laced. And we had a meeting. She was staying. I used to when I first went to Manhattan, I was involved with the American Place Theater. I, I worked in uh, the membership place, and I used to watch things like. Joe Gray and uh, Dustin Hoffman grabbing the tits of my girlfriend, Brenda Kurt, on stage in Ronald Ribman's play. Wow. I almost had a whole little rush of memories there. But that was at the American Place Theater, which was run by Sidney Lanier, who was an Episcopal priest who was an amazing character. He actually was Oppenheimer's priest and uh, when he went to uh, Jamaica. And he played the butler in my movie, Winterkill. He was an incredible character. But I remember we had a meeting with Lynn Redgrave at, uh, on 46th Street near, I think she had an apartment. She'd rent an apartment, you know, in the, you know, in the gritty west side of Manhattan, her being English and everything. And she was there with her husband and I, you know, I, cause I was drinking again and I said, baby, I said, you know, you can be the kind of girl to spread your legs and have somebody like me just slide over. She's looking at me. I said, cause you gotta get really into playing a hooker if you're gonna be a hooker. She's looking at me and she's liking it. I said, you really ought to do this. She said, I think I will. I said, man, that. So I don't remember how it ended, but I remember walking across the street. There were these, there were hookers there, these black hookers that I started talking to them. And I ended up spending the rest of the night in the top floor of the, uh, of this apartment where all these, like, there were, I think there were six hookers worked out of this apartment. And I was going to take them all the night. I was so drunk. I said, well, tomorrow we're going to go to Central Park and I'm going to take you all a picnic. You're hardworking. Oh, baby, leave me coming back. And I was sitting Anyway, so that was how Lynn Redgrave got in the movie. That picture got great reviews. I just found, because I just, we just moved to Portland and I'm going through old stuff. And I just found the review from the New York Times with a happy hooker. And it said, it's as if Jean Genet wrote a sitcom. Ha! But this is the thing about a great, a gay guy from uh, France who dressed up in clothes in prison and stuff. And uh, it involves a happy hooker. It's literature, man. It, it goes everywhere. It sounds like you were working on the Winter Kills script for years before it finally got greenlit. When did you first come to that property? Oh, no, I wasn't working on it. It got greenlit right away. It was never a greenlit thing. It was being financed by mobsters with cash. It was greenlit by... I know that phrase, and it's just greenlit. Fuck you! <laughs> I hate that phrase. We're going to greenlight. No, it wasn't greenlit by those kind of people that greenlight things. It was uh, greenlit when they... Got, they got part of the money, and uh, I said, let me go out and see if I can get some actors. Before you hire another director, they were going to hire some other director. I said, because the whole thing's going to be on casting, so let me go out to Hollywood and see what I can do. And as it happens, uh, because I got that job, because my agent was uh, Robbie Lance, who was also Milo's Foreman's agent, and they wanted Milo's Foreman to, to direct it, and Robbie said, if you can't get Milo's Foreman, I would hire Bill Richard. And that's how I got the job. So from the, but, uh, you know, and I went out and I stayed at the uh, Beverly Wilshire Hotel and a credit card that uh, didn't have any money on it, really, you know. And uh, but by the time I was I but and I got Jeff Bridges and I got Elizabeth Taylor and I got Tony Perkins and I got, and each one of these people was a was a whole meeting and like, you know, kind of like not exactly an audition. It wasn't an audition. Well, even Elizabeth, I had to, you know, sit with her, and, and she was sitting across from John uh, Warner, who was Secretary of the Navy. I think his son is Warner now, is in the Congress. And uh, but uh, 
I said, well, you're basically, uh, you know, uh, playing a pimp to the president. She said, oh, it's such a hoot. <laughs> I had fights with her, and I had one great fight with her at the Beverly Polo Lounge, the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, because we had a beautiful coat that they had bought for her in the scene. They made these incredible. There's about six minutes of Elizabeth Taylor acting in Winter Kills that I couldn't get into the picture because there was no money and then the footage was locked away and oh, getting all the footage back to edit it. And oh, then we had 400 creditors when it was shut down by all the unions. And then they had to get money in cash to pay the unions so we could go back to work and come moving around from city to city with John Houston, no less, and other great actors in a movie that it's all being done on a credit cards that are bouncing and bank. I mean, it's all true. And Fred did that. One of the guys in, uh, the scene in the golf carts with John Houston was Bill Wilson, who was a friend of mine, and he was the advance man for JFK. And he uh, had charged like almost five hundred, four hundred eighty thousand dollars on his American Express card when he was, uh, you know, for JFK. But you know, it's uh, he said that people at America when they finally caught up with him, he said they were hysterical because he, you know, he's just an ordinary guy. He's just charged. They couldn't, they couldn't catch him because they were going so fast. Anyway, so we were doing like. Oh, it was all outside every kind of known system, including my going to the White House. You know, when I think about it, it, was, it ended up being called Richard Duggan Productions. But there's no little company like that that does stuff like with the president's family, you know, individuals. Oh, I'm oh writing Winter Kills. No, I was uh, was uh, I got a call. I forget which it was still during waiting to do the president's daughters. And I remember I was coming back to California because I got on and I was sitting next to a guy named Joe DiMaggio the whole flight. So I'm telling Joe about my interview in the White House. And I'm saying, we should do something like that with you in Maryland. He said, oh, I loved her so much. I said, well, why don't you talk? We'll talk about that. So I was going to do Joe DiMaggio in Maryland next. And I also tried to get the Pope, but uh, through the woman who owned Emerson Electronics. But what happened was I got a call uh, from Robbie Lance in New York saying they want to meet you in Miami. Can you get to Miami? And they were, so I got to Miami. I had I was in California. I forgot what I was doing there exactly. But I went to Miami, and that's where I met Bob Sterling. And that was sometime in 1970, you know, right after the Happy Hooker, I think. But anyway, I got, I should really figure this out. It's interesting you're asking. So, but uh, no, I went to Miami and I started writing the Happy writing. Um, Winter Kills, and I was writing Winter Kills there when uh, Ham Fish, you know, uh, came and met me, and I went back to New York. So I was writing Winter Kills, and it must have been after Lawn Disorder, for sure. No, it, it happened pretty much after I, after I finished the script, went to L.A., got these few actors. They said, well, let's go. And then we got Vilmo Zygmunt, and then we got whatever it was, and we started shooting, but we didn't really have the money. And so these guys were scrambling, and the money was coming in from all over South America because you need X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars of every week. And uh, for three different weeks, uh, times, three different times, they didn't have any of the money. So I had to rewrite the script, Winter Kills, to make it so that we could cut it short. And um, I actually rewrote where we were going to um, Furnace Creek in a helicopter. And I was lying on the floor and John Houston is sitting up, uh, uh, sitting on the chair and I'm on the floor of the helicopter going over the mountains and it's bumping away, writing the last speech of John Houston. And we, that was incredible. That was incredible. And John and I then closed the bar that I, before we shot that scene, I was so fucked. I couldn't believe it. He's like, he was younger than me then. 
And he was at, you know, drinking me while man, he could still hold, he could still hold it and do it. Get a voice, you know, a tw- when I first met her, she looked like she was 14, his wife, you know, in, in Puerto Vallarta. I flew down to Puerto Vallarta and spent a few days there. And that's when all these, I was in a bedroom and, uh, you know, the, the, the houses were, uh, there was a little bridge that went across the street. And that was, the place used to be owned by Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And John told me their biggest argument was who would get the house because he wanted her to have have it, he wanted him to have it because they were totally in love with each other, no matter what anybody said. That argument I had with her at the polar line started with it. She looked at me, she said, You remind me of him. And then she and this guy came across the room for her. She said, John, Bill won't give me this coat. And then we went into this big argument. And then I realized at that minute that she and Burton and all those signs did that for the fun of it. They must have had a blast. They were performing and a lot of that stuff. Anyway. That was an amazing adventure because the people in the movie were like the people. I mean, John Houston was a form of, uh, you know, I hate to say Donald Trump because it, he was a form of Joseph Kennedy. See? And, uh, you know, a, a very powerful. When John Houston won uh, the horse race one year in uh, London, he he uh, rented the whole ground floor, probably two or three rooms, really, at the, I think it was the White Elephant Hotel. And had his friends stay there for a year. Just gave him, you know, gave it all back, you know. And he loved the horses. Of course, so did Omar Sharif. I mean, I spent the uh, spring with Omar uh, after Ace Up My Sleeve. I went and stayed with Omar in Paris. Uh, you know, and Omar would, uh, I'm going to put a picture of me and Omar up as soon as I get a chance. Because oh, what a guy. What a man, really. You know, and I was interested that I didn't, I don't keep track of all the people that I've known because it goes on. But uh then I read that he died in Egypt, and he would say, I'm an Arab, you know, Bill. And for an Arab, the most important thing is his water. Because in the desert, if you don't have water, you don't have anything. So we learn, as Arabs, what is precious and what is not. But what I, I went to, I'm going to write about this. I went to, in Vienna, one of the favorite things. That we both, I was, uh, I would write at different cafes and coffee shops while I was writing Ace Up My Sleeve. I mean, it's amazing you mentioned that. I, I even forgot, I didn't, I even forgot the title of it. So, but, uh, but writing in the, in, in this restaurant in a, in a, in a, in a, an incredible chocolateria in, in Vienna. And there's this really pretty girl over there. And I hear that she speaks English and stuff. So I talked to her a little bit about what she's doing in the pastries. And she says, Oh, you know, and, uh, you know, and she's on her junior year and she's from Connecticut and her name is Eve. And I said, at ease. So, you know, and so I'm there with my notes and everything, and then she, and then suddenly all these people come in because now the crew is arriving and everything. And it's Mr. Richard this, and you go to that, and you've got coffee, you need anything, you know, because I'm writing the scenes. They're about to shoot. I tell her that. She said, can't believe it. I said, well, why don't you come to visit us at the hotel tonight? I said, uh, I'm at the uh, Intercontinental. Call me and we'll get a date. She said, oh, I'd love to do that. I said, go back. So, and, and by the way, and I still have my girlfriend in, in New York and I'm not, I'm really not picking up on her. I just think it's great that I meet a girl in her junior year abroad and I'm going to get to introduce her to Omar Sharif at dinner. So Omar and I having dinner that night. So we're going to have dinner that night. So, we, you know, so we get a table and as Omar comes in, they, they the orchestra start, starts to play. And it's dum, dum, da, 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 dum, oh, oh. And Omar comes in and sits at a, Table. So now the three of us are there. That we're talking, and I I forget the question she asked, but because uh, we're talking about women and men and everything, and all of a sudden Omar turns to her and he says, "You 
are woman, I am man. And he starts to sing. You love that. Man. And the orchestra plays. And this little exchange from Connecticut is sitting with Omar Sharif in an orchestra in Vienna. And it's all in a way for her. And I didn't fuck her. And neither did Omar. We just, she was just the acts that we let go, right? So now, cut to Paris a long time later. And we're talking. And he, and he says, Bill, do you still see that girl? That one we met that night. I said, no, she's that back there. I said, but you know, I, I called her, you know, and, and she's getting ready to go home. And he said, oh, he said, you know, it might be from the show of Paris. What do you think? I said, Omar. He said, let's invite her. Should we invite her? I said, yes. So we call up Eva. And I know I love this story even more. We call her up. She's in Vienna. And she takes a night train to Paris. And we, Omar and, and me take her to Regine's. And we take her to Longchamp, the, uh, where there is the racing track. And there Omar picked up Alain Delon. And so now it's me and Eve and Alain Delon and Omar Sharif at the racetrack. And then we sent her home. And, uh, you know, that was our gift to uh, America. <laughs> no, it's like, and all during this time, of course, I'm writing to my girlfriend. And, you know, I was, they were saying, it was just that. It was like, whoa. It's like uh, Omar talking about making uh, uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago and, and talking about David Lean and, and Robert Bolt, who wrote the Lawrence of Arabia, and how he would do the dialogue for me. You know? And so I was learning a lot now I think about it. And, and, and of course, I ended up having Maurice Jarre wrote the score, both Winter Kills and Success. But uh, yeah, and we're not even at Winter Kills yet, you know, all that stuff, because that's still in Paris. And then I go back to... Can I ask you, how did you meet the drug dealers? What, in, uh, where, in the Miami, you mean? Oh, through my agent. <laughs> no, they went, to, they were prepared to make an offer of $100,000 to a writer at, uh, it was a lot of money back then for a first draft of the screenplay. I, I don't know how much, I can't remember how much I got, but, uh, and, uh, you know, and then they, uh, hopefully they would thought a writer director, but they got me as a writer. And during the course of writing it, I got to know everybody. And then I got a shot at directing it if I could get a cast. And I went and got one of the best casts. They could imagine. And once we made these deals with them, they were in, you see, then we had to give money to each of these actors once they signed up for the movie. So now these guys, uh, you know, and Lenny, of course, got shot and his brains were blown out. And, you know, I'm sure it had to do with, uh, not, uh, you know, not having the money when these guys wanted it back. Yeah, no, I didn't. Um, I met the drug, you know, uh, these guys uh, have, uh, they had a very legitimate company and it was called, uh, I mean, they released Emmanuel, Black Emmanuel, and they, uh, I forgot the name of the company. But, I mean, they had a legitimate company. And uh, the fact that I'm, you know, and Lenny wasn't a drug dealer. And calling, you know, Bob Sterling a drug dealer. I mean, he was a drug. He didn't do drugs. He didn't even drink. He was a vegan. <laughs> and they called him Little Hitler. And he was a sweetheart. But, you know, cause, uh, but anyway, yeah, no, I, that was all very legitimate. There wasn't like drug dealers running around. But the money came from the biggest smuggling operation in American history. And Bob was arrested and sent to jail for life without parole. And he got out after 12 years. And I went and visited him in Ossining, which used to be Sing Sing. And he said, well, Bill, you know, they tell me that in, 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 in the house here, they tell me the reason I'm in jail is because I made winter kills. And, you know, you never know. And I t and one of the things about Nixon and the reason, well, now I'm going to put all this shit out. 
But uh, when I went back and I saw my apartment and I thought, oh, man, they can set me up. Oh, could they do a number on me? And I knew they could. I mean, but I don't think they can now. And fuck it, I'm just touching wood. Uh, because these these are uh, terrible, merciless fucking people. And, uh, you know, the Republicans own 60 Minutes, and I don't care what anybody says. And I know they, you know, when they do all these things about our deployments and about, you know, those nuclear weapons are all out of date and everything, they're just giving money to General Electric and Westinghouse and all these companies. That's what they're doing. They're rabble-rousing and all of them. Who do you think gets the $700 billion that goes to the military? Soldiers? So that's that work. At one point, you stop making winter kills. There's no more money. And you make American Success Company. How do you kind of make that transition over and make a full other movie before winter kills is done? You just do it. I mean, there was I was carrying the footage of winter kills around in huge cans, you know, like all over Europe, trying to, to, trying to raise money for it. Oh, that's a whole other story. Then I got involved with an attorney named Benjamin Melnicker, and Ben put together the 400 creditors in a bankruptcy, some kind of situation, right? But the clean, he cleaned up all that debt and made it possible and while, to, to go ahead and finish it. And while he was doing that, one of the guys that we talked to about finishing it, Daniel Blatt, had a script. And it was a, a real piece of shit, by the way, by a guy named Larry Cohen, who's kind of famous. And uh, so I read it, and I said, uh, he said, he said, Bill, I was watching that footage, and I suddenly realized you're a great director. Why don't you direct it? So I says, uh, okay, but let me do a rewrite. I got to rewrite it. I mean, I can't do this. He said, okay, do whatever you want. So I did what they call a page one rewrite with me and Belinda. And, of course, I had made uh, this ballet film called uh, A Dancer's Life. I don't know if you know about that. Did you know I made a ballet film called A Dancer's Life? Yeah, earlier this summer you sent me a whole big care package, so I've watched everything that you sent along. Oh, good. So I already made that. So then with Belinda and using our relationship, too, I wrote that whole script for her and uh, to act in and Jack Bridges to act in. And, uh, you know, Jeff was about to go off. My, and I finished it just in time. He was about to go off and do a, a movie for a big Italian director. I forget who it was. But I, I went up to his apartment and we both started to drink. And since Jeff was at a fast to do this thing, he only had one glass of vodka. He got totally drunk. And then I said, and then I got a cane there, some kind of thing next to his fireplace. I grabbed a poker. I said, now, Jeff, have to see if you walk around like this. You're a tough guy, see? And he did. I said, try. He just said, he grabbed the cane. And I said, did he say? So I was talking about it. And the next thing I know, he canceled the other Italian thing. And he agrees to do the thing with Belinda. And we kept together to finish Winter Kills. And so we go to uh, Munich and uh, shoot that movie with Jeff and Belinda. And that has only been seen by 300 people maximum that movie and now though i got it on amazon prime so maybe it'll get seen but it's never been seen and 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 what happened was it was a tax shelter deal so at the end of it they took my rough cut and they just you know released it it was over they got you know fuck that you're done the movie's finished thanks mister so but i kept working on it and when the prints were all uh turning total red i got a guy i put his name at the end of the credits to uh to to uh, he copy them digitally for the first time. So we had all this red footage they were able to do. So I was able to put the scenes that I wasn't able to do during the editing process. Now I was able to finish my movie. Was, and, I, and the same thing happened with uh, Jimmy Reardon, the fucking mother. Uh, but anyway, so uh, only and only this year or last year was I able to put in uh, Magnuson's line, Jimmy, I want to fuck you in the movie so you can hear it. it changes the whole fucking movie in a way. And, uh, 
and because but that was her mother was uh refused she said, uh my son will not do any any uh promotion for your movie while well, those scenes are in there so the only way i could get and, and in the end she made him not do it anyway oh she did terrible things to her she told me look ridiculous and that he was laughable and you know he wasn't sexy and uh oh you should never tell a 17 year old but uh, we kept that out of our you know river and i had a very uh, good relationship no matter what so and 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 uh always one day we were going to release our movie our cut of it and and now i have and of course you know he's not here but he's around and uh and, and who knows what's going to happen with it because with that movie is the truth of all who river is and was somebody uh i just recently interviewed uh because he shuttered at my house jack greenbaum is his name who did a whole bunch of the uh, documentaries asking about river and i you know talking about how river did drugs and da, da, da. And so i finally said josh did you ever do drugs at the river he said well not me exactly but i i said well, so and they taught and i got him to tell me i said well what about that guy did he actually no well he i'm sure he did it but i can't but i you know i can't uh, no probably no you're right maybe he didn't and i said and joaquin and then he said well they were on heroin at that time. I said, so Joaquin and, and Rain were on heroin in the Viper Room? He says, probably they used it. I said, nobody, which is why, by the way, nobody in the family ever talked about River because they'd say, what about you? And now I'm going to, but, but somebody recently sent me pictures of Josh Greenbaum, his girlfriend, because she was pissed at him, sent me all these pictures of Josh where he was completely on heroin. She said, look how stoned he is here because it was Josh Greenbaum and these guys that were doing heroin all those years. Not River. Anyway, all the, so overall, now that I'm looking back on these years of making movies, and each one, you know, had its own kind of uh, special reality, I'd say. These were not things where I got hired normal, in any normal sense, you know, to write a script and turn it. None of it was, was like that or direct it. I mean, you know, three times when a major, you're on a set and suddenly the lights go out. I mean, you know, the, the time that um, Jeff Bridges hit um, Tony with that fucking black stick, night stick that was real, not fake, because they use the, you know, and Tony. But on that same set, the next day, all the lights went out. We we're way up in the sky, and and Filmo uh, says, "I keep shooting, I keep shooting until they turn all the lights out. Then all the lights go out in the elevators." Up <laughs> there with Jeff, and Tony Perkins, and we're looking down, and the deep fucking doors open, you know, and all these suits walk in. And they're screaming, you're shut down. Nobody's working. Get over there. You guys get down. So we're looking down. And there's no way to get down. The crew finds ladders. I get down and I'm walking them on the crew. And they're saying, we're going to get you the money, boss. We'll get you the money. We'll finish this movie, boss. Don't you worry, boss. And then I'm walking down uh, this great avenue on the MGM lot. We had at that time five of the biggest sound stages, you know. And, you know, and Robert Boyle's my production designer. He did, you know, North by Northwest. And the birds, he's the biggest one in Hollywood. He actually, I have him on tape talking about how, how Richard Kills is his favorite movie. And on his 100th birthday, he said, Mr. Richard, my favorite director, in front of all the art directors, because they're all so old. It was like open coffin session, but they were incredible men. And uh, yeah, so we're walking down with Tony Perkins on one side and Jeff Bridges on the other. And me and him, we're linking arms. Now I'm thinking about it. It's like the Wizard of Oz. The three of us linking arms, walking along. And Tony's saying, well, Bill, I was on that uh, on a picture with uh, Orson and... When they, and we ran out of money, and uh, so or, we, we were shooting a Volkswagen, so Orson put a rope around one handle of the car and then a rope around the other handle, and he pulled it, and he held the camera 
in his arms while he's moving back, pulling the car, and we made the shot. Tony, you know how big that Panavision camera is? He's like, have a tub. I was like, he said, don't worry, it'll be over by the week. Well, it wasn't. But that was the only part. Each one of these are like kind of un, un, different kind of stories from the making of normal movies, you know? Well, how do you pick up the pieces after American Success Story and go back to Winter Kills? I could do. I could go back to Winter Kills tomorrow. If, uh, we were talking. Uh, uh, Bob Boyle was talking about there was a the, the shot. One of the shots we didn't get in Winter Kills was a huge flag draped over the Pan Am building. When we went to get office, we, we told Pan Am that we wanted to shoot in their offices. We got a call from from somebody in Kennedy's office, Joe Kennedy's office. He said, "Do you understand? We had these are the offices of Joseph P. Kennedy or whatever they were." He said, "You ain't coming within a mile." of the Pan Am building and you will not have us building in your movie either. Clean it. I went nuts. But the first thing we did was use the Pan Am building. But uh, yeah, these were, oh, uh, so what I'm saying is that you, it doesn't, uh, it's not, I mean, it's not a big deal to go. I used to think I could, I used, in those days before I really understood the limitations of it all, you might say, getting money and da da da, I used to think I could go from, while they're shooting this shot, while they're lighting this scene for, half an hour or 45 minutes, I could go to the other stage and shoot another scene and another scene or another movie. You know, right now you can end this interview and you can have another interview in 15 minutes to talk about something totally different with a totally different kind of person. That's how easy it is. That's how easy it is. Or, you know, to go from one thing, you go from one thing to another. So going from success to winter kills was no problem at all. Actually, you know, I, I, now that I've there, I have apparent, I, I discovered that, that I have this different actors in the same exact situation on top of each other or under each other. In almost all my movies, I've had to put some kind of a sex scene in there where the actors look exactly like in all, all of these little films who are at least in success in Winter Kills and Jimmy Reardon, you know? The version of Winter Kills that you sent me is a little different than the version that I could, you know, buy on Anchor Bay DVD or whatever uh, a few years ago. Tell me about the different versions of the film. When it came out, what was what was the version that people saw theatrically the first time? The difference, it didn't have, the first version didn't have the scene with the girl on the bicycle, the release from the end, the girl on the bicycle, which is a capper for that film. She comes back and you think maybe he's going to be killed, right? Or the audience sees that girl and they know every time she showed up, someone said, that scene was not in the movie. And when I went back, and we cut it. I got access to that footage and I put it back in. There were a couple of other things I'm trying to hard to remember, but there wasn't much. There was something else in a the version they released in England. I got to think about it. I should, re I should remember. I just haven't looked at them, but the main thing is putting that last bit on the end, which was not on Anchor Bay. And I helped Anchor Bay get the footage and all that because they said they would give me the rights to the theatrical picture back. You see? And so I got Jeff Bridges that we did a, a thing called Who Killed Winter Kills. Yeah, and uh, Jeff agreed to do that. And we were going to get our movie back. But then the guys who made that deal with me quit and left the company. And nobody, and I never got my movie back. So now I put it up on Amazon Prime. But it's a, it's, and, and they take everything down. Every time I try to put it up on YouTube or something, uh, Lionsgate takes it down. And they have no right. They didn't do anything. No, they just take it down. They own it. They're taking all, all the money. I mean, you know, and I have contracts, and they say to me, so you know, you got ten grand, to, you know, point uh, done for conversations, and you know, I did sue somebody over a, a long time ago over uh, the rights to um, Fritzy's family, 
because I was going to make Princess Family at uh, Paramount. I had Madonna, Vincent D'Onofrio, and Uma Thurman. I was the first guy who ever cast Uma Thurman in Hollywood. I was the first director ever to meet her. We rode around in my van for months. And uh, and actually, I remember, I should write about that. I remember telling you, now you're going to remember this. We were running around in a van. Remember how you did this? I said, because this movie's going to make you a movie star. And I want you to remember the beginning. And we were laughing and stuff. But, you know, and I think she should also remember not everybody, not all directors in Hollywood are creeps. You know? We don't make passes on our actors. That is a very stupid thing to do. So, but that was the cast. And uh, I was set up at Paramount. And then uh, I used to go to Madonna's place up in Malibu. She called herself Lady Grey and uh, and read with her. One time I went up and there was all these pictures in her dining room on the floor of her. And, and uh, what's his name? That guy she was married to. Uh, she said, I don't know where to break them or frame them. I said, well, <laughs> she was funny. I had arguments with her about Tracy. Anyway, it was a great cast and I missed it. That was the only part I probably think she would she would have been perfect for because it was a rough Italian girl, just like Madonna. And uh, After Winter Kills came out, what was the life cycle? Did it just kind of go away and then never come back? Or this was still during the era before VHS when movies would have re-releases. Was there ever a re-release for Winter Kills? Well, after the first release for Africa Embassy, where they pulled it all out of the theaters, and it got great some great reviews. I mean, Vincent Candy gave it fantastic. I mean, a whole bunch of them. Richard is a genius, you know, and then, but then, uh, you know, it was uh, gone. And then I forgot how I got the rights. I had to go and get the rights back from AFCO Embassy. And I started a company with a woman named Claire Townsend, who was executive vice president of 20th Century Fox under Sherry Lansing and one of the people who helped get Star Wars made. And she uh, loved Winter Kills and, 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 and success. And so we got it and she helped me get it. She quit Fox and we started a company together. I mean, I learned a lot about, you know, studios because I had one of the heads of one come work with me as my partner. Just to hang out there with Sherry Lansing. I mean, I learned a lot about, and that, you know, and I worked for Tom Mount at Universal and various other major people at that time. But, uh, but so we did, we got the rights back to Winter Kills. How I got the rights to success is a whole other story. That's a great story. But anyway, and we opened them and, uh, really quick ran out of money for advertising and we only had a couple of prints. And it didn't occur to us that you got to open in multiple theaters with multiple prints to make money, because otherwise you spend all your money on the first theater and you don't make it money. Anyway, we went out of business pretty quick. But that was 1982, and that's when we got most of the major great reviews of Winter Kills, because people got to see it, you know, because it was in here. So it opened at, the, I think, the Cinema One or Two in Manhattan, and also on the other side of town, and... Uh, you know, we four-walked, as they called them, booked the theater. It was pretty something. That, there were lines around the block. It worked for a little while. But Winter Kills is not a mainstream, you know, middle America movie, I don't think. I don't even know what that is anymore. But. You talked a little bit about what you're working on, but you said um, when we were talking on Facebook that you were shooting some stuff. I'm curious what you're shooting these days. Well, I'm uh, doing what generals do at night. I shot part of me uh, of a scene earlier, and uh, but the sound was terrible. I'm going to put that up again. But I, I want to shoot. It, what generals do at night is basically a group of Air Force generals in Philadelphia see that the president is not going to you know, do what they expected him to do. And so they decide to reroute America, America and the nuclear bombers at their base towards domestic targets to save America from a traitorous president. And they said they will uh, detonate these things unless the president leaves the White House. And the military takes over until a new president can be elected. 
and they're southern, they're southern generals. At the end of the picture, they put on the lead puts on a southern uniform from his <laughs> grandfather, and the idea is just how simply and quickly our whole nuclear arsenal could be taken over just by by nobodies, you might say, compared to right. And it's all political, and it's just a, you know, it's a form of Doctor Strange though, which I think is a very good movie to show again and again right now. But it's but it's. Uh, so that's, and I've got a green screen and I'm shooting scenes from that, but I also am shooting scenes from the script I wrote, uh, for White Noise, which is a famous book by Gondolillo and I, HBO had me write that script years ago and nobody's made it since. So I decided to, and, and Delillo himself tried to, to get a good script out of it. But, uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm starting to shoot mine where I am just getting all my screenplays and I'm putting them in front of actors and, and shooting, period. I don't know if, you know, and just yesterday I put up that, little speech from uh, Chaplin. And that is the kind of thing that I want to do politically a whole bunch of. I want to start really using, you know, video, we'll call it there, or, you know, outside the way they're doing it. And I want to also think of Facebook. If I I was talking to uh, Mindy Nottis, somebody that I used to know, um, who later, I guess, went on uh, Happy Days. I think she was on Happy Days. Anyway, I want to put together a Facebook broadcasting network, you might call it. Using people and people like you, you could be one too, and and do Edward R. Murrow interviews with various people, and then have a kind of um, family squares. What do they call the Hollywood squares? We're using various people on Facebook. Each one would like each one. There are a lot of people on my Facebook pages that have different expertises, different kinds of you know people that write about stories, and do a kind of alternate broadcast system, but alternate news. And people talk about that all the time, but I mean, there was the Gaza shit that's going on right now, it's hardly at all, it wasn't even at all talked about on the major networks. At all. And uh, that's that's crazy. That's not good. So I even posted, to, I wrote something today about how Facebook has the potential to become all of by itself a major broadcaster. And if you a network, an interlock, interlink, um, a group of people, and it becomes a bunch of, you know, and suddenly we got our, all our own correspondents. We got different people. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Sodenberg happens to be on my Facebook friend group, right? So I could ask, I could interview him from this group about his experience, whatever it was. But also, also Michael Thomas's account was a former con. Anyway, each one of these people, and it becomes different aspects of what's going on in the news, but also because I know, you know, Barry Jamaxon, he's in Toronto. You know, I got, uh, what's his name is in Paris. All of a sudden it becomes universal. And that, and, and, and it just is in a, you know, when you got a six camera, four camera situation and a major broadcast uh, news entity with, all of a sudden you have a hundred or a thousand different people you go to in a night to do different broadcasts from. I'm sure there are Facebook people right now, probably in Iraq or somewhere. Probably someplace in, you know, who knows, somebody in Yemen is on. We can go right there and have a broadcast right now. And now we're going to Yemen, right? Yemen, right now. A little, you know, they can't stop that unless Facebook decides. So I'm just, you know, that is something I'm kind of trying to figure out, you know, a little bit at a time. But I'm also starting to write about it because, I, I you know, all you need is a, is a, is a uh, platform. And there are many of them, you know. And uh, because I think we have, we have to... Uh, have an almost an, you know we have to have a revolution against this bad evolution of this democracy and this guy bought the country you know uh, I forget the Texas governor who sold out the, his milk industry for ten thousand dollar Connolly he was in the car with uh, Kennedy he was under indictment for uh, you know 
fraud or something for 10 grand. Imagine how many politicians you can buy with a billion dollars. And this guy just, he's as despicable as they come. And, uh, and so if, if, if we can figure out a way over time to make some of these social engines function a little bit differently, but within their scope, see? But when I'm starting, you know, and I have like a few, you know, I've got a few friends already that I will start to do. And then I'll be able to call like Dennis Hayden in Kansas because he's got, he's talking to all the people in Kansas about what they think and interview him on the, you know, this broadcast network that arises out of Facebook. So obvious. So that's what I'm, that's, you know, but, and every day I've got, you know, I got a, got three computers and so many hard drives I can keep track of this shit, but I'm working on it. Everything I want. Any other questions? Well, Mr. Richard. Thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you for asking. And uh, I know it's all. I'm glad I don't have to listen to it. I hope you can figure some of it out. And, you know, you can ask for uh, elucidations if you need them. We're back and we're talking about winter kills. So you kind of stole my thunder. I was going to start talking about uh, conspiracy theory movies, but instead we'll talk about Richard Condon a little because Richard Condon also behind one of the greatest conspiracy theory movies, which is The Manchurian Candidate, which was another one of those movies that got short shrift when it came out. And when it finally hit home video years and years ago, it was just TV special after TV special. As far as I remember, there was a big deal when Manchurian Candidate finally came to home video and we got to see documentaries about it and all this because seeing this movie that came out, what was it, 62, I think it came out, right before Kennedy yeah. was shot? Yeah. And then just how it kind of presaged some of that stuff that we have this, I think it was a senator being shot in that one, and just all of those crazy machinations happening and just... It's just such a terrific film. I really enjoyed The Manchurian Candidate. Remake, not so much, but the original, definitely. Well, and Frankenheimer kind of owned that space for a little while, right? Like, you know, with The Manchurian Candidate and Seconds and Seven Days in May. And um, he just, he was on a tear as a director. I mean, I know it was based on the novel, but he was, uh, I as a director, he was on fire, I feel like, in that period. Absolutely, totally, yeah, and uh, yeah, the, the you know the the two big notes of uh, of change because of the Kennedy assassination. Obviously, it was you know Sinatra who was a producer on this uh, shelved right. it, and then you know in Doctor Strangelove, you had to change one one line of dialogue that Slim Pickens said. When you think about that period of time, like when Doctor Strangelove came up, and uh, in the same year, Failsafe, which is essentially the exact same movie without humor. Um, came out at the same time it's interesting that this that the 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 paranoia the shift of paranoia was happening pre uh kennedy assassination um you know that we often ascribe all the 70s thrillers as a reaction to 
you know, both Kennedys and Martin Luther King being assassinated and Nixon and 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 Vietnam. But it seems like those gears were kind of chugging into place well before that. Like that was kind of in the American zeitgeist as we entered the 60s. When you have Eisenhower warning us about the military industrial complex as he's on his way out, it's like, hey, guys, you should really pay attention to this. Right. Even though he didn't, he himself didn't pay any attention to it. But I think also questioning the the post World War II house in the suburbs and you know two point five kids and here's your you know this is this is your duty and this is what you must do and you know there's like ah, that's that's yeah it's it's too sterile it's too clean. And I do have to say you mentioned Alan J. Bakula earlier and. I'd say after Frankenheimer had that terror, the mantle was kind of passed over to him with Clute and Parallax View and all the president's men. Those three, just such a great trilogy of, of conspiracy films as well. And of course, Coppola's The Conversation. Well, and, and in the 70s, Frankenheimer tried to get a blimp to crash into the Super Bowl. Right, right. Black Sunday, which is actually a great movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's... And what's interesting to me is Pakula and Frankenheimer were not new Hollywood young Turk. They were, the, you know, they were boomers and old boomers like they were not young or I actually I think they were older than boomers. They were part of the generation that came out of World War Two. So this idea that it was only a you, you know, a youth reaction that was so cynical, I think, is kind of a mistaken attitude about those films. I think this was kind of, you know, like it was there is definitely something going on in artists, at the very least, that were reacting to the sterility of the 50s and and probably a backlash against the whole McCarthy thing as well. And Pakula had, because, yeah, but I think the last, well, I would say there's there's a couple that you could say is conspiracies. He did a film called Rollover, which had uh, Jane Fonda and Chris Christopherson. That was 1981, and I think that, that kind of got squashed and then didn't really get into conspiracy stuff uh, until a decade later with Consenting Adults. Even, like, if you look at the genre films of the 70s, they were all very paranoid as well i mean or the late 60s i mean you had you know soylent green and you had rollerball and you had um silent running and all these films where you know corporations are going to screw you the system is going to screw you everybody's going to screw you that even carries into Alien and uh, and Aliens as well. Just the whole idea of the corporation seeing the value in this uh, bioorganism, and so fuck all the human passengers. We just want the tech. Right, right. Thanks, Paul Reiser. <laughs> <laughs> you don't see them fucking each other. Anybody who wears percentage. his collar up that way can't be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> So is there anything else we want to talk about winter kills or conspiracy films? People should watch them. It's go, go, go back. If you haven't seen one in a while, revisit it. And, um, you know, yeah, enjoy the conspiracy theories and see how they're documentary. You know, are they documentaries today? Right, right. I think that's the big thing. Maybe people are not watching them enough and that's how we're in the, this shit show that we're in. I mean, it's amazing to me how the parallels like to the point of absurdity like i literally feel like we're, we're i feel like we're living more in winter kills than we are in the parallax view because 
because it's so absurd and it's so over the top and it uh and it and it's so convoluted and nonsensical and yet everybody's getting screwed for the benefit of the tiniest number of people i think they're a facebook quiz yeah they all stink daddy (laughs) which the facebook quiz is which winter kills character are you Right. Yeah, I thought exactly. the Facebook quiz would set you off like the uh, the Robert Frost poem and telephone. Oh, nice one. <laughs> wow, there's an obscure re- uh, reference. <laughs> All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. At the end of a century, ravaged by violence, a society of perfect order will arise. Criminals will be frozen and reprogrammed in cryogenic prisons. The prisoners are ice cubes. Their criminal instincts are being reprogrammed as they sleep. Aggression and deviant behavior will be totally eliminated. He's a criminal the likes of which you have never seen. In a bad time, he was the worst. I'm going to love running this place. But in the year 2032... This morning, Sam and Phoenix escaped from this cryo-facility. We are, quite frankly, not equipped to deal with the situation. Amidst a world of peace and calm... We're police officers. We're not trained for this kind of violence. How was the fiendish Simon Phoenix apprehended back in the 20th? In the end, it took just one man. John Spartan. You mean the demolition man? The conditions of your parole are full reinstatement into the SAPD and immediate assignment to the apprehension of Simon Phoenix. Two mortal enemies. Just dropped in to say hi. From another time. Pass is over, John. Time for something new and improved. Oh, hell. Will be unleashed on a future that isn't big enough for the both of them. Sylvester Stallone. Wesley Snipes. Demolition Man. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Demolition Man. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Jeff and Matt. Jeff, what has been keeping you busy lately, sir? A lot. (laughs) Um, So I've kind of transitioned um, out of film writing, uh, out of writing about films to writing films. Um, So I... Um, I wrote the sequel for, uh, Doug Schultz's next, uh, horror film that comes out in the fall. And, um, I'm currently adapting a, uh, novel, uh, by Stephen Graham Jones, um, into a, um, into a film. And then, um, I just recently wrote a sci-fi that's, you know, um, very dark and depressing and uh starting to get some uh traction so we'll see where things go with that so um i've kind of left i'm I'm trying to you know i don't know either uh i'm trying to follow the trajectory of Truffaut or rod lurie i don't know which um, but i'm but i'm hoping to create some films as opposed to writing about them and Matthew, for people who are unfamiliar with the brilliant work that you do on WFYI, can you tell them about what you are up to? 
I, I didn't tell him to say that, folks. Um, yeah, I, well, I do several things at, at, at WFYI. Uh, for this program, I do a film show called Film Sociology. Ha, ah, get it? S-O-C-E-Y-O-L-O-G-Y. <laughs> Hey, it's my name. I might as well use it. Um, so I do that uh, every every weekend as well. I do a blues show on Saturday nights, and I also produce a program called Stolen Moments. So, and and this is the month of April, so we are getting ready for the big spring pledge drive. So, you know, you insert your favorite tote bag joke here. Why not? Uh, but so between my work at public radio and you can listen at uh, WFYI.org film sociology is available. The podcast is also available on iTunes, but I'm also trying to, I have a 16 year old daughter and I I'm trying to get her to watch films without, you know, shoving them down her throat. So, you know, she picks one, I pick one, I guess, fingers crossed. How's that going? Uh, any tips? Um, I remember a guy saying, uh, a musician told me this, of just, just have the albums lying around and, and they'll, they'll, they'll gravitate to it as opposed to you must watch seconds, which I don't recommend for dad daughter night. I have not done it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, my favorite was she, this was when she was much younger in her, uh, in her Hannah Montana phase, she saw a scene in a show that looked like, uh, she said, it looked like a movie you would watch. And it was a squirt gun fight, but it was shot like a spaghetti Western. And, uh, I said, yeah, I, I own the good, the bad and the ugly. And what every dad wants to hear is, can I watch it? And, oh, uh, she great. went through a search. She went through a Sergio Leone phase, which, you know, chalk one up for parenthood. I wish my son would go through phases. He, 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 I have a about to be 16 year old he, next month. And, um, oh my God, will... you don't know anything. <laughs> well, he's, he's a boy, so he doesn't say that. He, he actually doesn't say much at all. When, oh, he <laughs> grunts. You, right. He grunts. Um, but, um, I have managed to, you know, at Christmas time, we watched The Thin Man, which he loved. And, uh, every now and then he, uh, he'll say, Hey, can we watch a old, black and white horror film. So, you know, with the wolf man, he loved the invisible man. Um, so, uh, and he, he, you know, he, he's not only a teenager, but he's kind of a jock. So getting him to, um, settle in and watch anything kind of meteor has always been a little bit of a challenge. I did get him to watch Dr. Strangelove and he, and he said he really liked that. So, yeah, Emma likes Strange Love. Um, what I've also learned is that what you think is a filmmaker's best work is not necessarily the best thing to start them with. Uh, right. My daughter's my daughter's first Woody Allen film was Midnight in Paris. Her first Scorsese film was Hugo. Um, she she's also created the genre Men in Suits Talking. So <laughs> that's that's what she called Goodfellas. And and I'm like, okay, well we'll we'll try again. Have Have you shown your son Slapshot? No, I haven't. <laughs> well, I bet he's heard worse. I was thinking, I was thinking more like the uh, the longest yard, maybe. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, that's a good one. Um, just because I think there's the rhythm of late sixties, early you know seventies movies, late sixties rather, um, and up to mid seventies. The rhythm of those movies is so different than so many other movies, and I find that he that's the one that he's a little struggling with. Like he watched the two Godfather movies, and he was half engaged. Like he he liked it, but it was just too sprawling for him. Um, and I. <laughs> 
And, and thanks, Michael Bay and Boz Larman. I know. Well, and when I'm trying to think, if I were 15 and watched The Godfather, would I would I have you know um, sunk my teeth into it the way I did when I was 19? You know, that just those few years made a big difference. Um, but then again, at 19, I was also watching a racer head. So, you know, and he, I know he's not ready for that. <laughs> and look, and look how you turned out. Right. <laughs> Don't wish that on anyone. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to thank everybody for listening. Please head on over to our website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.